a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speed albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian on late night sitcoms syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels. I wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better to giants after make up a green star that grew on my life. I wish that I could spread my wings. I had seven limbs. Yeah. That way I could hold on to everything and laugh when I hear. People wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. <laughs> With Throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. Tell me, do it, it feels just like this. Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to another big David Weigel retweeted a sexist joke. I don't think there's really any dispute about whether it's sexist. It's just whether or not you think it's funny because, you know, lots of jokes are problematic and that's why they're funny. Um, that basically says something to the effect of uh, every woman is bi. You just got to figure out if it's sexual or polar. He was called out pretty quickly for the joke. He untweeted it and unretweeted it and apologized. However, one staff member in particular, Felicia Sanmez, spent the next few days 
tweeting quite a bit about how David Weigel needed to be punished more, how there was a broader culture, cultural problem at the Washington Post. And even after Washington, the Washington Post instructed its staffers not to kind of litigate these HR concerns on Twitter, she continued. And today I'm reading from the Huffington Post. Uh, the Washington Post has support a reportedly fired staff reporter Felicia Sanmez, who made several public statements in recent days criticizing the newspaper's leadership and her colleagues over several workplace issues. The Daily Beast was the first to report her exit with CNN and the Post shortly after. At the center of the action against Sanmez are David Weigel, a national political correspondent for the Post, and Jose A. Del Rio, another reporter at the paper. Tensions flared last week when Sanmez tweeted a screenshot of a sexist joke that Weigel had retweeted and said, fantastic to work at a news outlet where retweets like this are allowed. She also reportedly discussed the matter in an internal Slack channel. Weigel, who apologized and deleted the retweet, was subsequently suspended without pay for the next month. Over the past weekend, Sanmez retweeted posts critical of Weigel and accused the post of having different social media policies for different employees. Del Real then stepped into the fray, accusing Sanmez of rallying the Internet to harass Weigel. In the days that followed, post employees and other media personalities emerged with defenses on both sides. Sanmez has had a fraught relationship with the post, which she sued last year, along with some of the media organization's leaders, for temporarily restricting her from covering sexual misconduct stories after she revealed publicly that she had been a victim of sexual assault. Hmm. In 2020, the Post briefly suspended Sanmez for tweeting about the 2003 rape allegation against retired basketball star Kobe Bryant shortly after his death in a helicopter crash. The paper's leaders later said they determined she was not in clear violation of any of the company's social media policies. Notably, this is not in the article, this is just me talking, David Weigel defended her on that score. Um, no good deed goes unpunished. I'm very curious to see how people are feeling about this. I think that while many folks would have had some, you know, legitimate and substantive criticisms about David Weigel's choice to retweet the joke in the first place, the feeling that the response from the post and many in the public was so disproportionate that it, it made people feel inclined to defend him, even if they wouldn't have defended the underlying action. And now many people are frustrated that, you know, many other people are frustrated that it's the person who was aggrieved, Sanmez, who ultimately is receiving the harshest professional rebuke and getting fired over all of this. It's a big mix up. I'm sure there's a lot of diverse opinions circulating about let's, let's get into the mix. Uh, Samuel, no pressure to talk about this. Obviously, today's episode was not on the subject. I thought we'd just open with a little pop culture levity. What's on your mind? Unmute yourself and tell us, Samuel. Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, exciting. Brianna <laughs> Joy Gray. I love all of your work. And uh, I have I have an Android, so I was only recently able to get the app, but I've been listening for a long time. And uh I love bad faith. I'm sure you've heard all of this before, but um, I actually, <laughs> well, I appreciate. I have a couple of things that I sort of wanted to comment on from the past week or two, and I could just say yeah, sure. a couple uh, brief things. Um, one is about electoralism. If you don't mind me 
skipping back to that. I don't want to disrupt. Absolutely. The- it's the favorite subject of the calling crowd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I'm going to take a sort of typical wishy-washy position that I think there's truth. The truth is somewhere in between, in between the poles of saying, uh, of sort of enthusiastically throwing our energy and time into candidates on the one hand and saying, I'm through with electoralism, it's pointless. On the other hand, I think that getting officials into elective office is important. And if you're concerned about social movements and you know, if you look at history, I've read about this. If you're concerned about strong social movements having an impact, having even just a few people, uh, allies in government office can provide cover and can make a huge difference and protect your movement from being just crushed by the state, which is what has often happened. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think that it is important, but I also think that you, you have to have a foundation underneath those people that both supports them and has the power to control them when necessary. And you have to have the balance of the two. And I think it's sort of like, if you think of an iceberg, uh, most of the iceberg is under the surface and that's like citizens on the ground. And then the little tip of the iceberg sticks up above the water. And that's like the government officials that you have who, who depend on you. And I think right now we're out of balance. We're out of whack because we've had remarkable success, at least, you know, in historical terms. We've had remarkable success recently in getting self-described socialists and other leftists into office, into Congress, into some city councils and so on. But we haven't, we've gotten out ahead of ourselves. Like uh, there's this saying in Britain, we're out over our skis. I think we've gone far in that regard, but we don't have the working class organization underpinning those folks and sort of giving them support and direction. And the fact is, once we get them into office, they may be awesome people. And I absolutely believe what Afini was saying about Michaela Wilkes, that she is all the things she was describing. But the fact, regardless of how great she is, the fact is, if we get her into office, uh, the party leadership, the party donors, the media will have a lot of power over her and more power over her than we do. Right. And and so that's where it's I think it's incumbent on us to be more organized, more forceful and be prepared for when we get people like her that we support into office. And I'm not going to discourage anyone at all from working for her, supporting her. But I just think that's the bigger political situation we have to look at. And so we've sort of, we've gone too far in one front. And now I think it's on us to, to, to do the rest of the job um, and to, to get that foundation under them. And I'm just increasingly persuaded that when it comes to having an organized, strong left with a presence in government, it cannot, such a left wing cannot exist that isn't rooted in organized labor. That is just, that has to be the underpinning. I think that I, I'm, I wouldn't have said this two or three years ago, but I think so now. It has, that has to be the foundation. And um, that's why I think that the, the unionization that's been happening at Amazon and Starbucks and so on <clears throat> is really the best thing 
that's happened at least in the last two years, maybe in decades. So that's just how I see that, that I, I think that um, we do have to engage in the electoral terrain, but we can't, um, it's not going to really have the impact we want if we don't have the working class organization first. So that was just my comment on that. I don't know if, if what you think about that. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a at this point sort of a consensus position, Samuel, that, you know, I don't think there's anybody in this, this crowd would disagree with you. I think what was contentious last week was the extent to which the idea of there needing to be organized labor organization, organize, 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 you know, we talk about it ad nauseum every week, is to the mm-hmm. exclusion of supporting a candidate like Michaela Wilkes. And it did feel to some people, not to everyone, like the goalposts had been moved. Of course, we all agree about all of that stuff. So what does that mean about whether or not you're going to support Michaela Wilkes? I think Michaela Wilkes would agree with that too. But if you were saying that we need both, that we need someone to be able to push, you know, organized labor needs someone who is who they can push and who could potentially be an ally on the inside and all of these things, well, that won't exist if not for the support of Michaela Wilkes. And while people might want to spend the limited funds that they have on organizing or mutual aid and not uh, electoral campaigns, you know, what you're saying isn't an argument against ostensibly at least supporting someone like Michaela uh, with your vote and your retweet or whatever you can do if you don't live in her district. So uh, what I think some people felt last week was that despite giving better answers than a lot of other candidates that have been on this show, it seemed like she was attracting almost more um, antagonism. Antagonism is probably an overly strong word, but less support than some other candidates have gotten. And people were trying to understand what that was about, but I appreciate you calling in Samuel. Yeah. And, um, and I, I totally agree. And I think that I would just say it's great to get someone like her elected, but if we're really supporting her, think two steps ahead. She already said she's open to the idea of leaving the democratic party. And we have to think, well, what if she did that? They would destroy her. They'd get rid of her right away unless there are people actually organized on, un, un, you know, underpinning her who could protect her in that situation. Um, so that was, that was just my thought on that. I don't want to hold you up or take any more time. I also had, I had comments about the man issue, the manosphere issue, but uh, I could go that, go back to What's that another time. The, if you don't want to let us, let us know what, what, well, what you're thinking about the manosphere. Uh, well, just quickly, you know, I actually tweeted a thread um, commenting on it under your tweet last week, which I think happened when you were at your reunion, which I'm curious about, too. I want to know how the Harvard reunion was. <laughs> I hear that laugh. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, you know, I think it's a tremendous issue that really presents a huge challenge to leftists because, you um, I don't think we really have the apparatus to deal with it and to think about manhood, masculinity, the fact that we're driven so much by, by hormones, <laughs> you know, like men, uh, men are really in a quandary. And I think a lot of people either just avoid it, they're afraid to talk about it. Um, and I, uh, I really believe that it's connected to a sort of broader array of similar issues like about spirituality, religion, connection to the past, aesthetics, 
there are all these, I think, sort of needs and impulses that people have. People want something to aspire to. Uh, you know, and with, as leftists, I think we are very practiced in providing critiques of what we uh, want to change or overturn about society, which is good. But we don't, we've, I think we're, we're way out when it comes to providing things that are inspiring, uh, not, not just role models, but even more than that, you know, inspirations and um some sort of positive vision of how to live a rich, fulfilling life. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that's right. I think that you're right that the, the left is very critical and not necessarily um, aspirational. And it sometimes gets involved in a degree of point scoring as opposed to being supportive and reaching out. And I think that it's true that we talk about, we don't talk about masculinity as affirmatively as we do, you know, femininity or pa- pa- patriarchy or women's rights issues the Mm -hmm. same way that we don't talk about whiteness we don't talk about kind of what's considered to be the norm and i know how people Mm -hmm. feel about that word in this group but you know when (laughs) when things go unexamined then there are cultures that exist that we really misunderstand and that's why i think some of the best discussions on the topic are from folks here on the show who have dealt personally with the experience of feeling alienated and who have you know, contemplated taking actions like we saw in Buffalo and Uvalde. And I really appreciate them sharing their stories with us here last week. Exactly. Anyone who hasn't listened to that episode from last Thursday, I should definitely go back and take a listen. And if any of you lot are in the chat from last week, I just want to say again, I appreciate your vulnerability and willingness to share those stories. But yeah, I agree with you. And and thank you so much for calling in, Samuel. Oh, and if I could just add one little brag before I go, I'm sorry, I don't want to hold you up, but I just have to add, we are sort of two degrees of separation, you and I, depending on how you measure it, because I produce a history podcast, and one of my big, uh, wonderful fans and supporters and boosters is Sparky Abraham, who is like one of my angels, (laughs) so so that is- that is Sparky. Oh, he he is so angelic. I it makes me suspicious. Is he a deep fake? <laughs> Are you sure that he's real? No, Have you touched him physically? <laughs> he is. He's I too have wonderful. Made physical contact with Sparky. Abraham. All right, I'll believe you. I can I'll believe you. His corporeality. <laughs> thank you for All right, calling. Thank in, you. Samuel. Thank you for talking. Bye. Bye bye. All right, Lindo, I'm coming to you. Everyone, look alive. I'm skipping around today. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind, Lindo. Hi, Bree. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm calling you from South Africa. Oh, well, welcome. Is that, are you wrestling around or I think it might be the last caller. Sometimes it still has you connected. If you can mute yourself yeah, and it's... disconnect. Or is it you, Lindo? No, no, it wasn't me. Okay. All right. Sounds like it's cleared up. All right. What's in your mind this evening, Lindo? Um, so I, first of all, I, you know, I've been listening to you for quite a while now and I, so, so you obviously mentioned Medicare for all. And so I wanted to get this right, that in America, you do not get access to any type of healthcare unless you can pay for it. Is, is that what the, the big fuss is about? I try to wrap 
after head around our healthcare system really like this because with which people in the other in other parts of the world um makes they want to um take me off of the speakerphone or alternatively yeah that seems to maybe have fixed it um Oh, no, it's just, it's still happening. It's on a delay. Something, so I'm not hearing my own voice back at me. Or maybe I'll just mute you while I'm talking. How about that? Um, I'll unmute you in a second. So uh, so there's child health insurance, and obviously there's uh, Medicare when you get uh, over 65 that offers you d- uh, health insurance, although it's not total. For some reason in America, we've decided that dental hearing and vision are not, you know, your, your teeth, your eyes, and your ears are not part of your body and need to be addressed separately. And that's true of our health insurance programs for historical reasons that I won't get into the weeds of. We, uh, couple our health insurance with our employer. So it's not that you're necessarily paying the entire amount out of pocket. Generally speaking, it's subsidized by your employer. They pay some and you pay some, but you will very quickly observe that there's a bit of a conflict of interest there, wherein if you change jobs, if you are fired, you often have these coverage gaps. And with enrollment periods being where they are, you can only pick up insurance at certain times. So if you're unlucky enough to get diagnosed with something bad when you're in between insurances, it can lead to real problems, especially because until recently, if you had a pre-existing uh, condition, it would have uh, negative implications for your ability to get affordable coverage. So that's how we do it in America. If you quit your job or, let's say, get sick and really need insurance, but because of your illness, it can no longer work, you can lose your insurance. People often are insured through their partner. So that's how a lot of you know women and young ch- children and young people historically have remained insured, even though they are not employed. And it's a really piss-poor system. Yes. Correct. Oh, what happened to you, Lindo? I didn't mean to kick you out of the line. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm still, I'm still here. I'm still here. So then, so then, in a in a situation where you aren't on someone else's insurance and you also happen to be unemployed, what 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 happens in that context? There's this uh, specific medical term that they use in the industry. It's called shit out of luck. <laughs> 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 you are SOL, my friend. You oh, pay. You pay enormous sums of money out of pocket. Um, and many people go bankrupt as a consequence. The number one cause of bankruptcy in America is medical debt. People wow. get pregnant and have babies and are hit with, you know, double digit fees, sometimes more, if God forbid there is a complication in your pregnancy. Cost thousands and thousands of dollars just to give birth. If you don't have health insurance, SOL. <laughs> um, that is so hectic. It's it's really macabre. And we, we side, just think that's how the world is. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us what it's like on your side. So so on this side, we have sort of like a two-tier system. So you have the mm-hmm. public you so you have the public health care system. So that's basically clinics and hospitals that are um, government funded um, and run by the government. And then you also have the uh, private healthcare system. So that's where you have private, co- you have private hospitals that are owned by mainly large um, corporations. So then if you are 
on a medical aid, which I guess is the equivalent to your medical insurance, because then part of it is funded by out of your salary and part of it is funded by your employer. So if you are on a medical aid and across the country, we have about 75 uh, medical aid schemes. So if you're on a medical aid, you have access to a private hospital, which is which generally just just does provide um, better health care because they have very few numbers. They are able to pay their doctors uh, and nurses exponentially um, more than what the the public health care system is able to provide. The facilities are better and all of those things because they don't have that much of a burden because there's a very small percentage of the South African population that actually can afford private medical medical health care. Mm. Um, so so you have that that system. But so the I mean there are many challenges with the with the state run um, um, health care system, but largely people can can get the kind of healthcare that they need at any point in time. You can give birth for free. You do not have to be employed or make any kind of money or have any money to get access to any kind of um, healthcare that you need. You literally can walk into a hospital, well, a public hospital that is, and you should be able to get any kind of healthcare that you need. So it is it is very interesting when I hear like the American discourse about um, m- m- Medicare for all and Medicaid because I'm like, I, like I, I couldn't imagine not being able to get access to healthcare simply because you're unemployed and you're not on anyone else's insurance. Like that sounds so crazy. Yeah, and many people in the chat are pointing out that even if you are employed, um, you can still not have health insurance because people keep you at part time. You have to work a certain number of hours for the government to basically require your employer to extend insurance to you. You also have to be a certain size of employer for that requirement to kick in. So there's lots of people that fall through the cracks that employers intentionally keep people working low hours and unpredictable hours. So they don't have to meet those health insurance provision requirements. It's it, it, it is, it could not be worse. Yeah. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds, that sounds crazy. I'm not going to lie. It, it could for, not be worse. And for, the richest country, for the richest country in the history of the world, <laughs> to not be able to do something as basic as give health care to, to the population. Yeah, that sounds crazy. Yes, King, drag us. Drag us. And let me <laughs> ask you this. What do you make of this conversation that we often have here? People who are op- in, oppose- in opposition to Medicare for All often talk about how, yeah, sure, in other countries you can get health care, but there's a waiting list. The quality isn't as good. People fly to America to get surgeries because, you know, they, they can jump the line and all of this stuff. You know, do you, is there any local, is there any domestic conversation from your end about people who are at all frustrated with the public hospital system as opposed to the private system? Yeah, so we, we actually have that conversation all the time. Um, uh, so we had, I think it was last year, we had our our deputy, our vice president, he flew to, um, was it Japan? Yeah, I think he flew to Japan to get access to a certain kind of um um healthcare that he needed that he apparently couldn't find um in this country and obviously we're talking about about the vice president so this is someone who can afford the best doctors in the country but had to Mm -hmm. fly out in order to get that healthcare that he needed but it was the 
the actual condition that he, he has was very hush hush so no one actually knows what he was getting treatment for mm. but but i but but it brought up the conversation about then you know what does that say about the state of our healthcare if the vice president cannot be treated for whatever condition he has in the country but then on on top of that we south africa has i think the highest um the highest population of non-South Africans who live, of other Africans who are not South African who live in our country. Um, mm. And there, there were reports about how the healthcare system is overburdened by people who are not South African, many of them undocumented as well. Mm. And then, so that that that, that was, uh, again, a, a topic of conversation to say, there were some there were some people in the country who are South Africans who were saying that hospitals when um, serving people should prioritize South Africans. The conversation very quickly did get xenophobic because you had people mm. saying that if there's someone who wasn't born in South Africa on, ho- on a hospital bed and a South African needs a hospital bed, that person should be kicked out. Obviously, that's a very xenophobic stance, but, you know, such um, conversations do do pop up, but I mean, uh, maybe broadly, our healthcare system is quite um, overburdened. But it's not. I wouldn't say it's overburdened because um, there's just too many people, or it's overburdened because there's something inherently bad about the state being able to fund healthcare. I think we have huge uh, maladministration problems. Um, I, I think really the issue for us is how the the healthcare system is administered, as opposed mm-hmm. to there being something fundamentally um, wrong or or inefficient with a state being able to provide yeah. um, is, healthcare to is people. There, is there any conversation? Is there like any real risk of people saying, "Oh no, we got, we want to get rid of our public system," or is it more is is the, the extent of the conversation whether it's going to be limited? I mean, to me, as an American, it's shocking that you're even in a space where you allow non abilities because pain used to oppose any kind of people are going to be using American services and American tax dollars. And that's a large part of how folks argue out of even starting these programs to begin with. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I'm saying is I'm impressed with you. (laughs) (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll take the appreciation on behalf of everyone else. Um, But, but, but yeah, I think the, the, the the issue really with us is with the, um, well, the political party that's currently in power, which are the people Mm. who, then obviously put in place the policies um, and appoint the administrators, the people who run the healthcare system. I think really our challenge is with the political party itself. Um, if we had maybe a different, I mean, we also don't have, um, we don't have a lot of good options in terms of political parties, but really if we had people who were strong administrators who were actually committed to running our healthcare system, I don't think we would have uh, that many issues. I think really the problem is the administration part of it. And not because we inherently cannot provide good quality healthcare system to to the citizens. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think that's really the fundamental issue that the quality of the healthcare system, because it's it's fundam- the quality that's provided in the public healthcare system is obviously exponentially higher than um exponentially lower, excuse me, than what right. you would get in the private healthcare system. 
Linda, before you go, can I ask you real quick, uh, what is what is the South African perspective on the Elon Musk phenomenon? Um, the, the, the fact that he's buying Twitter. Just anything. Like, what do people think about him in South Africa? Do people discuss so I, him? Like, what's the Twitter convo? All of it. So we do, we... I mean, he he doesn't like dominate head, headlines or anything like that. Um, the only time that he's spoken about is when I think Americans um speak about him. Mm. We had some conversations when he uh, made the bid to buy Twitter, but it mm. wasn't really anything that wasn't spoken about anywhere else. I I think also because he doesn't have. I mean, he left South Africa when he was 17, and mm. before then he was virtually. I think he was virtually unknown. Um, I think. Apparently, his dad is wealthy, but I don't even know who his dad is. So it's not even someone who's prominent in South Africa. Mm. So, I, I mean, there, there obviously is like a, a, a portion of the population that really respects him because he's been able to amass huge amounts of wealth and become one of the wealthiest people, you know, in the world. And so the people who like look up to him in that sense, but we really don't really speak about him a lot. So what you're saying is he's not considered to be a national hero in pride of South Africa. Not at a all. A glowing not jewel. A, far from, <laughs> from it. A, from a horrible exploitative mind. Trevor Noah is the person who's seen as our greatest export. So I see. Trevor, Noah, Trevor Noah is that person. Definitely not Elon Musk. Got it. All right. Fair, fair enough. Thanks for calling in, Linda. It's been nice talking <laughs> to you. Thank you so much, Bree. All right. How about uh, Nusrat? I've not seen you. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm probably butchering your name. How do you pronounce your name? Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind this evening. Nusra? Nusrat? Hello? Hey. Hello. Hi. Hi. Oh, wow. I'm nervous. <laughs> Don't be. Uh, I'm talking to Brianna. Of course, I'm going to be nervous. Oh, stop. stop. <laughs> How about you start by helping me with your name pronunciation? Uh, Nusrat. Nus- Nusrat. Okay. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> do you, do what, you what, know the Do you know the Al Nusra Front, the sure. terrorist organization? Am I doing yeah. it that bad? Badly? It's the, it's the yeah. same name. It's the same. Okay. It's Nusrat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, what's in your mind, Nusrat? Um, so actually I had a few things that I actually wrote down, uh, okay. cause I was re-listening to the Norma Finkelstein, uh, call in episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mind is a little bit everywhere, uh, cause I was just <laughs> listening to you like a whole bunch of episodes, um, of yours. There's a few suggestions that I wanted to make for episodes that I, maybe you would be interested in. Sure. Um, so first is, uh, the whole like genocide theory with Uyghurs, whether or not they're being genocided or mm. not. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I learned it was that genocide means killing a genos, a people. So one thing, because I'm Canadian, uh, we talk about cultural genocide and our government has explicitly apologized for cultural genocide. But there is a professor you may be interested in speaking to. Her name is Pamela mm. Palmatter. Uh, she's a Mi'kmaq woman from Atlantic Canada. She's a professor here in Toronto um, at Ryerson University. And she argues that cultural genocide mm-hmm. was just a way to, like, attenuate the fact that it's still genocide because they tried to kill the, a genos of people. And so by that definition, 
Uyghur genocide might stand. But then again, I'm not too sure, but I thought that would be an interesting conversation. Um, regarding inflation, today's episode, I was a bit confused by what Dr. O meant when he said that because... It definitely... Uh, hello? Would be... hear me i can still hear you can you hear me oh okay oh okay yeah no at first it just kind of cut off sorry i'm using the browser because i can't download uh call in on android anyway um so then uh i was just confused about dr rose saying that because military equipment requires very few raw materials other than like steel that it doesn't add to inflation um yeah, I, I don't quite get that argument either. I think that there's there's this yeah. argument that, um, you know, so what Republicans are saying is that any spending, like any mm-hmm. spending is going to cause inflation, ostensibly because I guess more money in the pockets of Americans, let's say through stimulus checks and the like, means that we're going to go out, raise demand, supply can't be met because of, you know, the supply chain issues or any other kind of issues. And that that's going to raise infl- inflation and that because military spending doesn't require kind of these general use products that are in short supply, that it won't have that same kind of effect, I think, ostensibly is the argument. Okay, so then uh, supply chain issues exacerbate. Okay, well, it's still, though, public spending Anyway, I think it would be interesting yeah, if you I got mean, like somebody it, like Richard Wolf to talk about it. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. And it, it does feel to me as though there is this presumption that, you know, like he points out that the military is the largest employer. I mean, I, I'm obviously not advocating for all the people employed by the military to get like wage cuts or anything like that. But the, that money is just always grandfathered in the money that is funding all of those people's ability to stress the supply chain by going out and buying things with those salaries and the money that goes to the people who are profiting enormously from all of this military spending, the Lockheed Martin millionaires and billionaires and CEOs and all of the people who have, you know, doubled and tripled their wealth over the course of this pandemic, their spending never seems to really come into equation, which is questionable given that there's what, like six people who have more wealth than the bottom 50% of Americans. There's always this presumption that me going to the, store and buying diapers and peanut butter is having this enormous effect that Bill Gates building three houses in Hawaii or Mitt Romney building an elevator for his car doesn't have, even though in terms of volume of money, they're spending more. Exactly. Um, I think also just the fact that we, we, every time, you know, there's a pair Panama papers or paradise papers, we still don't discuss just how much is lost in in tax revenue which could offset the inflation i think um but i definitely think that you should have more economists on to discuss these but if like someone suggests getting Giannis for a focus i think that would be a good reason to have him back on the pod i was just about to say varoufakis is hard to get a hold of but my question was uh regarding varoufakis also was have you heard his um shall we say like his pr- proposition uh, instead of having electoralism, which is to have a jury system of qualified people that are pulled out of that, like, let's say you have a license number because you have a law degree, mm-hmm. 
you get uh, your number gets pulled up. And now for five years, you get to serve in the Ministry of Justice or how we yeah, call it. Yeah, the... I don't know that I've heard Vofakis talk about this, but I've definitely heard people talk about this. I mean, and there have been yeah. communities in history that have operated on this basis. And there's a lot of trust in the system because everybody knows their number is going to be called and they all rotate through. And yeah, on the whole, the outcome people in communities making decisions instead of these unilateral people who are not necessarily. And I mean, I'm into it. And especially now that we're, we're experiencing this kind of what feels like an unprecedented lapse of trust in our American community. It's difficult to think of a way out outside of those kinds of, um, kind of structural changes that really foreground the notion that we are in a community and mutually dependent on each other for outcomes, how that something like that would actually happen, how we would get to that place. Who knows, but I'm, I'm completely open to that, that sort of thinking. So if you wanted to see his entire layout of that, um, there is the monk debate and UNK uh, debate on YouTube uh, that happened here in Toronto, where he, laid it all out where it, you know, that would get rid of insane election spending, boisterous personalities, you know, hijacking the the news of the day and all of that. And you would just get, you know, the shy types of people who are qualified, who could get a chance to serve in government without requiring, you know, good public speaking skills and things like that, that are very surface level. Um, And then another thing I wanted to talk about was, so this is the the main thing was I was watching The Crown again and then Mm -hmm. listening to your podcast where you said that people who don't um, care about reparations don't care about black people. And Mm -hmm. I want a little reductive, (laughs) but okay. Well, I mean, you something like that, something like that. Um, But uh, and I used to wail because. I'm South Asian, I'm Bangladeshi, and we talk about this with the, the, with Britain all the time of like, if Britain were to pay us back, they would just be a sheep herding colony off the, you know, mm-hmm. an island off the coast of Eurasia. And then mm-hmm. I was listening to this other podcast from Canada Land called Land Back, and it's this indigenous movement of reparations as well, of getting the land back. And right now there is this discussion of what land back means to different indigenous individuals. Um, And I was just thinking if you could have like a full episode on reparations, but not just because so many of your listeners are outside of the U S if you could have, because the thing is, is that I'll give you one example uh, in the 90s, Queen Elizabeth II was going to apologize to the Maori people of New Zealand for colonization. Mm-hmm. And our Prime Minister, Jean Chrétien, is very close friends with Queen Elizabeth. Like, he's one of her top 20, like, orders of the night of whatever. Um, and mm-hmm. he actually told her uh, in his thick French accent, like, uh, you know, Your Majesty, if you apologize to the Maori people there are over 200 nations in Canada you're going to spend a lot of time on your knees and the crown actually 
backed backed away from the apology and refused to mm. issue an apology after that personal conversation with Jean Chrétien. And so I was just thinking, like, if African-Americans get reparations, then, you know, I think the conversation was also like people in the Marshall Islands and all the nuclear testing and everything that they went through. And it's like all of these nations will start to just like lose all of their wealth because of everything that they've plundered. And so I was kind of, again, just like the Varoufakis and like these, I, how would that go about? Like, how would we make things whole? How would we get them to atone? So I think that would be an interesting um, episode well, again, as well. I, I, people feel differently about this. I feel very strongly mm-hmm. that reparations isn't about atonement. I think it's about tort liability and people okay. deserve to be paid with their owed. And when corporations get sued and the damages they've caused are greater than the um, you know, amount possessed by the corporations, the value of the corporation, sometimes they go out of business. And that is mm-hmm. what it is. And we don't have this conversation. Sometimes mm-hmm. it means that the person who was wronged doesn't get made whole. They're not fully compensated. And it also sometimes mm-hmm. means that a business, a corporation, whatever, doesn't exist anymore. So and you that's, think that them's it, the breaks. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I think that for one, there are all of these false boundaries and limits that are put on reparations. Jews weren't mm-hmm. made whole after the Holocaust. You can't make people whole after something like that. Right. Like, yeah. first of all, life is is irreplaceable. And so that the whole conversation, the idea of not starting to do a policy because it, it cannot make someone whole to me sounds like a real convenient pretext that's wrapped in kind of this moralizing language. That's really yeah. about not trying to make someone even partially whole. And so I think that's malarkey right off. The yeah, bat. Um, I think second um, of my, all, the, yeah, sorry, people talk about this with Israel and Palestine, too. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. well, Israel is built all this stuff up and it's like improved the land and all this kind of colonial speak for why we, you know, like, well, it was a shitty thing to have happened, but we're here now and we got to deal with it. We can't just place all these people and it would be really inconvenient. I, I, I personally am not very sympathetic to that. <laughs> um, if you think that there are things that are like buildings and, and developments that are good and shouldn't just be raised to the ground or whatever. Okay, great. But now, but now they're Palestinian. Like I don't, I don't, I don't personally have a lot of sympathy for that. That's never the way that land transfers, colonialism, any of that has worked in the past. Suddenly, suddenly when it's these legal st- systems that were invented by colonizers in the first place in place, we're all talking about all this equity and fairness and how not to mess with displaced people, which especially in the context of Israel, Palestine seems like, perverse so if we're talking about american reparations you know no one i don't think that black people want there to be a country where we're only 10 percent of the population and we're like magically we're not asking magically to take it all over or there are all these other groups that have competing claims which they should also have validated and all these other kinds of things but there should be a meaningful conversation about the fact that reparations is just one um, redistribution of wealth that helps redistribute the fact that we live in an oligarchy where again six people or six families or whatever it is have more wealth than the bottom 50% of Americans so the idea that there's not enough to meaningfully go around to all of these communities that have been marginalized over time I think is really ridiculous unless you are very committed to maintaining the economic status quo I think that's the thing though is that they are you know I mean, like the Maori people couldn't even get an apology, right? Just an yeah, apology. Yeah, it's not going to come. Though, it's not going to come yeah. by asking. 
Yeah, so I was. Uh, <laughs> no that's one's why gonna I was get wondering. Any of this by asking. That's why I was wondering if you could do an episode showing the actual mechanisms of like what, because I don't know anything about tort law or anything like that. So what would that well, look like? I mean, that's the thing. There's a lot of different people yeah. who have a lot of different different reparations plans, and mm-hmm. you know, it's out there. And I, if I'm bristling okay. a little bit, it's just because people, every reparations conversation that people bring up, it starts like no one has ever thought about reparations before. People have been planning reparations for like 150 yeah. years. People I mean, Steve, in Israel. 1890 had thoughts yeah. and feelings very specifically about reparations, what reparations should be. But everyone mm-hmm. likes to start the reparations conversation like, but how will we figure out who's really black? And how will we figure out who can, like, no, like if you really are, inv- I'm not saying you, but generally speaking, if people are really invested, they should put it in the old Google and like there's people we've had on the show. We've had one of the leading reparations experts, Derek Hamilton, on the show talking about reparations. And it wasn't a full-blown reparations episode. He was here with um, talking about the broader black agenda in the course of the um, uh, general election. But I, I do agree that it's worth having an episode on. But I would just really caution everybody, this is not – these are not like new thoughts um and oh yeah absolutely not it is very right, very just, possible it just depends on what plan you want to get but this is not a how will we figure it out issue it's a which of these is the best way to do it issue and that's, that's what i was wondering if you had like a episode which which one would be most feasible and most like like could happen right because that's the whole thing with electoralism and you know what is the alternative like what is the most mm. practical um well i also don't know that i agree with that i don't know that i am planning my I think that reparations is also a, an ethical issue and I don't think I'm, I, I don't just because something isn't popular doesn't mean I'm not going to support it politically I'm not you know I think that's a, that's very dangerous I will prioritize or press certain kinds of issues because I think that they're easy to coalition build around like Medicare for all but I am not you know anemic in my support for reparations just because politically I know it's not necessarily as viable. And I think talking about things as though they're not politically viable and prefacing every conversation with, I know nobody likes this, but is exactly how you prevent things from ever becoming politically viable. Medicare for all was not popular five, 10 years ago. Bernie Sanders made it popular by talking about it as though it was something that could be possible. And I feel the same way about reparations. Okay. Um, and the last suggestion I was wondering was if you could get someone kind of like Michael Parenti, but maybe not Michael Parenti, um, to talk about political violence. That would be an interesting, uh, just because uh, a lot of people were saying like, oh, are they like pointing a laser at AOC's dog and everything? But then, because I come from a country with a lot of political violence. Like I was born in a country with a lot of political violence. And so to this day, like my cousins will be like, don't ask me about this question when I'm talking to them on the phone. Cause they're like, mm. you know, they're listening, they're listening. And, um, and so I was thinking of like, well, yeah, I mean, why? Oh, Hello. Uh, you cut out after why for me. Is anyone else hearing her? Hello? Is it, are you guys, are you guys hearing me? Or are we both cut out? Okay. I'm not sure what happened to her in her connection, but um, I really appreciate all of those suggestions and I will, I will definitely follow up. I've been taking notes the whole time. Um, let's go to, um, 
Mark. Mark, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind tonight. Hello, can you hear me? I can hear Hello? you. What's on your mind? Okay, awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I just wanted to say how much I appreciate um, your political project. Um, it's been really cool to listen to. I'm also really nervous, so I'm sorry if I sound really weird. <laughs> um, no, you're you're, but, you're um, doing great, sweetie. You're okay, doing amazing, thank sweetie. You. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Um, I guess uh, kind of piggybacking off of uh, what you were talking about previously with the, um, I mean, this is just like a short aside, but um, I remember in the Charlie Kirk debate um, that you had uh, where he mentioned that like there were actually reparations and that really like confused me because I was like, I'm pretty sure there weren't. <laughs> and then I like, there weren't. Uh, yeah, I looked up online and what he was talking about literally was like disbanded, like like immediately five, not even five years later like um correct anyways but <laughs> um so uh I kind of really wanted to talk about um the episode today I really love like like leftist kind of perspectives on economics just because I feel like the onus is kind of like every time I get into conversations with I grew up in um sorry I'm like this guy my friend um uh I grew up in Indiana um, in like a very kind of conservative um, family, but a lot of my friends um, and I went to art school after that. So like, I'm very like, you know, have kind of grown up around um, like, like a very intensely conservative religious um, kind of childhood. And then um, as I grew up, I, you know, especially in like my public schooling and going to college, um, I just was exposed to a lot of different like people and it just kind of opened my mind and stuff. Um, and like, you know, I still have to obviously talk to my conservative family. Um, and like a lot of the conversations I have with them about um like economics, I just feel like the onus is on, and, you know, not just, you know, in those conversations, but like also listening to you, you know, on, you know, the Hill or whatever, you're just like talking to, um, you know, more conservative minded folk. The onus is kind of like on leftists to like really have their shit together and be like exactly mm -hmm. like A plus B plus C equals E. Like you just have to like really like... <laughs> Like you feel like you have yeah. to have literally every single question answered because, yep. you know, they just kind of fall back on like, oh, but like, and I actually really appreciated, you know, when you mentioned in the podcast, we were saying, I actually feel like conservative ideology is more simplistic. Like it is more like, no, they have a very like, I understand it all. And like, this is how it works. And, you know, there's no gray area to that. Um and like, it's, yeah, anyways, it's, it's, easy to right. make, it's easier to make a case for inaction. Basically, if your if your argument is that big government is bad and it should be smaller because, exactly. you know, the real reason is that you want private industry to run, run amok because you're a corporatist, then yeah. you are always going to be able to find instances of government malfeasance, bad action, because people are flawed and nothing's perfect and everything's bad. I mean, like you're always going to be able to make the case. But to make an affirmative case is much more difficult, especially when conservatives have done a really good job, not just taking on specific issues. You know. Hello, sorry, you're breaking up. <laughs> Hello? 
here, like always, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Maybe I'll, if, maybe I'll go off okay. Wi-Fi. I think you're back now. What's going on today? I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not on the, <laughs> I'm not on the, I'm not on the computer looking at the feed. I'm not doing any of that this time. So I can't, I don't know what's a, what, what you can attribute this to, but. I'm just saying that they come up. It's like been happening like out, like out, like, like every, like, I feel like 10 to 15 minutes, it like breaks up for like, like 30 seconds and then I'll be back. <laughs> They're trying to silence us, Mark, is what the issue is. <laughs> um, oh yeah, just saying that they, they have these, like, they have come up with terms and scripts and they teach narratives to their people, to their followers, like <laughs> originalism, like trickle down economics, like, like the triple check out economics, the like the, the invisible hand of the market, they're just making up storybook pictures and things. But that seems like a real sciencey way to explain the world. Mm-hmm. And the left, by contrast, we have things that we can say, but we have to teach MMT from scratch. And we have to not only do it in, mm-hmm. op- you know, with the skepticism of the right, we have to do it with the skepticism of liberals. And and we're, we're mm-hmm. li- you know the thing that left the left always has to overcome is this idea that we are children who are naive and driven by feelings and emotions and like heart eye emojis or something, and so it it is an is an, is an uphill battle. But part of why we're being failed here is because liberals will not get on board with this project. Excuse me, of, of having an ideology and a narrative structure outside of any particular issue, any specific issue. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel, and there's also, this kind of came up while I was listening to it, but, like, I'm I'm also kind of one of those, like, 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 I've fully been on a date, like, and, like, they've asked me, like, what is your biggest hot take? And I've fully been, like, money is fake. I think that in the future we will have a currency-less society as we understand it now. <laughs> like, I fully believe, and, like, I believe in that possibility, um, but like a lot of like it's that very like tinfoil hat like everyone is like you're crazy. Mark um, is fun at parties. But... Mark, how does that go? Wait, first of all, <laughs> first of all, where are you dating? What part of the country? Well, okay, so I'm actually now in Canada. Okay, um, I'm in Vancouver. Um, I I I work in animation, so okay. like I'm just you know up here doing animation things. But um, but I mean even here, like you know. And this has been something that I've realized coming here to Canada. Obviously, a lot of people in the States, you know, they glorify the, you know, liberal promised land that is Canada or whatever. But, um, you know, there's a lot of things that kind of suck here, too. I mean, obviously, it's everywhere. But, um, but yeah, I, I like, I even was, I, I went on a date with a doctor recently. And it was, I actually was reminded of this. Uh, with the uh, Lindo collar mm-hmm. um, with like the healthcare and stuff. And, you know, I kind of got into a conversation with him about um, like, you know, this is just what happens. I, I, you know, I really, I, which is a very stereotypical thing to say. It's like, you know, very basic to say that like, Oh, I don't like small talk or whatever, but like really just like fully dove into like, mm-hmm. what do you think about healthcare? Like, how can we like, <laughs> with a doctor, like, Mark, it? you know how that's going to go. Doctors can <laughs> yes. be weirdly conservative about this stuff. They're all like, Oh, know, all these know, lawsuits are driving up my was, insurance he premiums. Was, he totally was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he totally was. And I was getting those vibes. And I was just like, um, I, I don't know. I guess I just took it on, which is so stupid of me because like, you know, I, what do I know about healthcare? Like I, I have my, again, I have my vibes. I have my like 
what I feel it's like. It's not just vibes, Mark. You know, but- like our <laughs> ethics, our our fundamental principles about healthcare as a human right are not just vibes, and you need to get your doctor friend to get on board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like he was he was talking about, you know, some of the um some of the, you know, inefficiencies of, you know, the systems and stuff and I was trying to not like, you know, you're someone who I just I I very much like appreciate your just because I have grown up around like you know, different opinions and stuff. And I genuinely want to create an atmosphere of understanding without like, you know, giving up my own, you know, morals or ethics or whatever. Um, But like, you know, I I genuinely try to understand that like, oh, yeah, like there are probably some issues with this system. So like, let me like, kind of how can we fix those things? Like, how can we make it better? Um, And like that kind of like, like, uh, the main question that I wanted to, or not question, but just like topic of like conversation was um, like, I, I don't know exactly how government systems are structured, um, but like, is there, do you know if there's any like department of like, like efficacy or something within individual systems that like, you know, different governmental programs or whatever, like, I know that the whole point of government is, like, for better or for worse, that, like, it takes, like, a a while to change or whatever, because that's something that conservatives find valuable, Um, which, you know, there is some merit to that, I guess, but... um, No, I think it's planned, it's planned, not planned obsolescence, exactly, but they, when I was... I'm not I'm not knowledgeable about this, but I've heard other people talk about this, and then I I will think about who could possibly be a guest for this. But there were all all these efforts, very intentionally done, to remove government programs to make them less efficient and move like all of these kind of administrative programs. It did a lot to make government more efficient in the in the in the 80s and 90s, and there are whole bureaus that got taken away that used to used to play an important role of making sure things actually worked efficient efficiently and conservatives intentionally gutted them because they sounded like bureaucracies that like didn't do anything because they weren't like literally oh, the department of agriculture or something that obviously had a purpose, but they served exactly those kind of purposes of making sure everything ran well. And that's, that's part of the, I mean, that's how you get your the Republican narrative to work so well. Oh, the government doesn't work because I made it not work. And now you got to defund the government some more because you shouldn't fund something that doesn't work and on and on and on and on and on. So you're, but is there like, like, I know that there's, there's some people who probably don't like, 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 there has to be a reason why they think that way. Is there like, I I just don't like, why, why, why would they, why would there be a, a program that like is supposed to help people and they like purposely just like, like make it not work or just like not because like, it makes no sense. I feel like there has to (laughs) Well, because here's the like, thing. Like, there has to be some sort of, like, oversight. There's no – so people have this idea that people go into government to get these cushy jobs and they are intentionally not wanting to make things better, I guess, so that they can keep having their jobs. But that's the opposite of what government is. That's how private industry is. Like, all of the perverse incentives in terms of profit motives and skimming off yeah. the top and all mm-hmm. that, that exists in the private industry. I'm not saying that it is impossible mm-hmm. to have those kind of motives in government, but the salaries in government are so much lower. The gains to trade are so much lower. There is government waste, but largely government, there's all this waste because the government has to outsource everything because its ability to do anything of itself, again, has been stripped. So I was I was seeing this guy. You know what? Let's pretend I wasn't seeing him. I know a guy. <laughs> I know a guy who works for the Biden administration 
who was, you know, frustrated about how, you know, in the department of, mm, let's make up a department, <laughs> uh, the department of agriculture, let's stick with that, uh, where he mm-hmm. ostensibly worked, you know, you couldn't implement any program. You had to hire all of these contractors, which then there were, there was all these, this waste, right? Because you have to be a qualified government contractor to bid on the thing, which basically the people who get the, the, the qualifications just do a lot of like palm greasing and hoop jumping through. And it's a very corrupt enterprise to even get in the door. Then everybody's passing off subcontracts to their friends to get a little piece of money here and there because the money's all sloshing. When the government has so much money, it is sloshing around. So there is government waste, but it's coming through the fact that the government is having to liaise with all of these private um, um, mm. folks to implement anything they want to do because there is no government construction company. You know, if they want to build a new school in Puerto mm-hmm. Rico, yeah, you got to hire people and it's government money going out of the door. There's no sense that there is, a, you know, that there are government housing designers, low-income housing designers or, or government mm-hmm. road pavers or government. Like people aren't directly employed in that way except for through the military. And it, by the way, it used to be different. Mm-hmm. And FDR's government is heralded and many people in the chat, I'm sure, are much more um informed on this from a historical perspective, but we're heralded for being people, you know, the secretary of agriculture is like a farmer, you know, it's someone who's, who is knowledgeable, not someone who went to McKinsey mm-hmm. to learn about agriculture. Mm-hmm. And that, and that was, I mean, that's part of why the government was so effective, but again, there has been a deliberate yeah. attempt to neuter all of that, but you're making me think that this is, I'm going to add this to the list of um, things that Nusra was um, suggesting, but an episode on how they ruined government. And how good it used to be. Maybe someone like Harvey K. I've been waiting mm. on the show for a while. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. like my conversations with people, like in my family, specifically my dad. Like he's, you know, very conservative. Um, but when I have these conversations with him, you know, it all just kind of falls back on, you know, these these things don't work. Like, um, my religious affiliation tells me to vote this way and the government is the boogeyman and, you know, there's nothing, but like, I I just try to frame it for him. Like, what is a government? A government is all of us who are deciding to, you know, invest in society. Like, that's what. Yeah. And there are checks and balances. You can just ask him, what's the alternative? Ask him, does he trust private? Like, to me, it's like, I'm not going to defend the government. It's not perfect. But what I do know yeah. is that I would I trust as much as I hate his guts, I'd much rather be stuck with Joe Biden and my ability to vote him out in four years. And the fact that he cannot he literally is not legally allowed to be president for more than eight years than overlord Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or any of these people who's who have no democratic obligation to help me at all. At all. Their whole point yeah. is to yeah. help themselves yeah. like they have no I can't get yeah. rid of them. They control huge parts of the workforce, and I have absolutely no decision making whatsoever, and neither do their employees. So, so pick your poison. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did the date end? No, no you're breaking up right at the juicy part. Wait, wait, wait. Mark, start again. They say government, but they accept it. Mark, you were. You were- I mean, not I'm like trauma myself. So, oh no, Mark, sorry, you're you're, you're glitching up through all of that. I heard you saying something about the government. Um, Mark, hello, 
Hey, Mark, I can hear you now. Can you? Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. No, I feel like conservatives accept a lot of the neg negative things that they say the government does. They accept it from the private industry because it's private, but like, you know, it still exists. It's just the, the onus has changed, you know. I don't know. I don't know right. if that makes sense. And there's sense, no but, democratic accountability. Um, but Mark, before you go, can you tell, yeah. us, tell us how the date ended? No, I mean, the, the, the date, I mean, it was, it was okay. I, it didn't end well. He was actually, I, he definitely felt very uncomfortable by me prying the subject. Um, <laughs> but like, I didn't, I didn't care. I'm not actually, you know, dealing with my own trauma. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll figure that out. But um, I'm just kind of meeting people and, you know, seeing where things go. I have no specific intention with things. But yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, of course. Thank you for calling in. I wanted to also say um, I appreciated your, as an animation nerd, I appreciated your run anthem from a couple weeks ago. <laughs> My run anthem? Yeah, the go the distance. Oh, LOL. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's a classic. Yeah. <laughs> thank yeah. you so much. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye. Okay, Joe, you're up next. What's on your mind this evening? Hey, Bree. Um, this is uh, really cool. Thanks for moving to the back to the front I, here. I wasn't going to um, leave you hanging, Joe. I know. Although I was, I was happy to wait, though. I understand <laughs> completely. Um, yeah, give some love to the folks in the back, too. Uh, but I, um, I, you started out um, by talking a little bit about the um, Washington Post, Dave Weigel yes. thing. Who, who I really like, too. Um, yes, please. I've been trying to talk about this, and none of you guys want to talk about him. Got yeah, no. So I, um, I think I think we agree. I, I, I understand that if you're a journalist at the Washington Post, your social media activity is going to be hyper scrutinized and all that. But I, I think that it's kind of harsh um, to suspend him for something that for retweeting something. Which was like obviously a joke without pay. Yeah, like that's harsh. If anything, like I like I said, hyper whatever. He's gonna the tweets are gonna be hyper scrutinized. Washington Post, I get it, but couldn't it like if anything had to be done at all? Like what about just like telling him like you know please like you know we have a social media policy, observe the social media policy, and then like done. right. And also, they, they act like it was like, look, I, I have no interest in defending the substance of the tweet. Like, if I saw a guy, let's say I'm like on a dating app and I see a guy tell a joke like that, I, I'm i probably going to roll my eyes a little and maybe not swipe right. If I knew someone and, a, and was a friends with someone and they told a joke like that, I'd probably laugh because <laughs> I, I would know my friend and have a, a sense of whether or not, you know, they actually were sexist or whatever. But, and sometimes right. you just tell a subversive joke because it's subversive and not because you actually believe in the underpinning politics of it. However, they act as though he was defending it or like didn't want to take it down. Like, as far as I know, it was up for like minutes, maybe an hour. I got the impression that it was immediately taken down and he apologized. So at that point, if nothing else had happened, I would have been completely satisfied if the internet wanted to Twitter on for another few days about how Dave Weigel's a real jerk. Okay, whatever. I don't care one way or another. If that's a conversation, that's a conversation. But the fact of old girl 
choosing to push this vendetta publicly on Twitter for the next week, despite her bosses telling her to cool your jets and to not air your private HR disagreements in public. Suddenly, any any critique that I might have had of David Weigel's choices goes completely out the window because her behavior has ratcheted up to a point where, you know, it's so much worse. And here's the thing. I, I am definitely not trying to litigate any HR stuff that has occurred to me in the, on Twitter or in this public sphere. But I think everyone remembers an incident that happened at The Intercept a year or two ago where that was very similar, where Lee Fong posted some things. It was, it was during Black Lives Matter, and he had some videos with black voters talking about how they didn't like destruction of property, and people got very upset about it. And they said that he was cherry-picking interviews and that he was misrepresenting what black people think and all this stuff. At the end of the day, you can think what you think about that, but they were just videos of real people who were saying their opinions that were heterodox. And it is what it is. I personally would rather know about that so we can contend with the attitudes that exist out in the world. And that is a, was considered to be a part and parcel of a larger series of behaviors and takes from Lee that people consider to be racist. And one of my former colleagues, I like Lee and I like this other colleague, Akela. She took to Twitter and said, Lee Fong is a racist. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up uh, and I was working in law firms and other corporate contexts, you didn't just go around out in the world trying to use like public opinion to advance your ends at work. And I don't even understand what the ends are that you're trying to advance. You work with someone. You have to see them every day. What is it that you want? Do you want your colleague to get fired? Well, I mean, maybe you file a grievance. Maybe you make an argument for why you think they're not a good fit for the paper. But I think when people do things like this and act out on Twitter, it's not because they actually think they have a credible case for them being fired. They just want them to be shamed. They want to weaponize the court of public opinion into them basically the kind of like self-canceling. And I, I have a problem. I have a problem with that because these institutions are relying on you having a, a public facing pers a persona. They capitalize on the fact that you have a Twitter personality and you're not just doing straight news. You're out there engaging with people and telling jokes and retweeting funny gifts and things like that. That's part of it. But there are, there is a risk to mixing your personal and the private and to, for the, for the company basically to put you in that position to be exposed in that way, you know, and then allow you to be, you know, the, the fact that your job and earning money relies on you having like a good public reputation and then have your coworkers exploit that goodwill and public expectation to try to coerce certain kind of HR employment outcomes feels very dark to me. Did I lose you? Oh. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I was listening. Um, I, I do remember that uh, incident at the intercept with um, Lee Fong and all that. And um yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think it comes down to just like kind of like disproportionate responses. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with, I agree with all of that. Uh, it, w there was one other thing too, um, that I kind of wanted to, to bring up sure. as well. Um, when, for your guest for the podcast earlier mm -hmm. today, when you were talking about, uh, inflation like the different causes of it and um how like the, you know there's the supply chain the major supply chain issues uh the demand which can be influenced by spending but also um another factor being um 
kind of corporations seizing the opportunity of like, um, you know, people expecting inflation mm-hmm. either because of the supply chain or the demand, or just because of like, in some cases, I think sensationalism about it, uh, which might be self-serving, but um, that like they'll, they'll take the opportunity then to say, okay, we can raise prices without pissing everyone mm-hmm. off because then they'll just blame inflation or they'll blame, you know, on the right, they'll blame um, government mm-hmm. spending. Uh, and you guys were talking about that and about bread, specifically about bread, right? Because that's what Ro Khanna, uh had proposed that um, the government buy or subsidize. And I was just like thinking like, you know, I, it, it actually made me remember back in the uh, 2020 Democratic presidential primary, whenever there was um, that issue with Mayor Pete and um, the bread spice mm-hmm. uh, fixing mm-hmm. thing. I'm sure mm-hmm. you remember that. And um, I was listening at the time to uh, on Chapo. They were they were making fun of that. They had like a really funny segment where they were like, "Who who fixes bread? <laughs> like the most like basic staple good." That like, you know, people who don't have a lot of money rely mm-hmm. on and they need and like they're, they're like it's like a a, a villain in a Charles Dickens novel. <laughs> right. And of course his campaign tonight, I'm looking at this BuzzFeed article from December 2019, which feels like a lifetime ago. Um, which opens Pete Buttigieg had nothing to do with a decade long scheme to fix the price of bread across Canada. His campaign said in a statement, despite an internet theory that bubbled up after Buttigieg disclosed that he had done consulting work on supermarket supermarket pricing for the Canadian chain Loblaws during his time at McKinsey. Um, yeah, I mean, he didn't. Right, <laughs> right. right. Do, do you remember at the time um, the New York Times interview Benjamin Applebaum did with him, with, with Mayor Pete on the campaign no. trail? Where he about that? Oh my, it was, it was hilarious. Like, ben, I have to give Apple Bob a lot of credit for that. It, uh, partially just because like, I mean, it was good, but it was also just. Wait, funny. no, let's listen to it. You we got to listen to this. Yeah, yeah. Let, wait, wait, can I play? You it? have it? I have, wait, I have it. I have it right here too. Wait, it's right here. You've been, you've been on the front lines of corporate downsizing. You've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing. You've been on the front whoa, lines whoa, that's, that's, of, our, that's, of our misadventures I'm sorry, that's, of our misadventures in foreign policy. You've had direct experience of many of the things that make a lot of young people very angry about the way that this country uh, is operating right now. You don't seem to embody that anger. So the proposition that I've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing is <laughs> just to get that out of the way. You um, worked for a company that was fixing bread prices. Uh... No, I worked for a consulting company that had a client that may have been involved in fixing or was apparently in a scandal. I was not aware of the Canadian uh, bread pricing scandal until last night. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Man. But yeah, it's great. Just the way he cuts it. He's like he, he denies it. Of it course, ultimately like, liberal Ooh, sorry, sorry. It's just keep, brought- it's playing. Just wants to keep playing. My bad. And the video is even funnier. Yeah. Like he like. He like does like a dead eye. Like when he when he cuts in is like, you worked for a company that was fixing bread prices. He's like staring at him. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I can, I can see into your soul. Like, <laughs> um, it was, it was. I sent like 
I had uh, my my friends back then, my friends today too, Pete Buttigieg uh, supporters. I sent that clip to them. I just couldn't resist. And uh, mainly just because I thought it was hilarious. Um, <laughs> and they didn't think it was that funny for some reason. <laughs> but I, I For some was, reason, Joe? That was... <laughs> No, it's just, I don't know. I thought I thought it was funny that it should be universally applauded and praised. Look, but, I'm generally yeah, against I, was, trying to bully and shame people who supported other candidates in the primary and that we should all come together and we've got to convince these people to be leftists. But I will make an exception for Pete Buttigieg supporters for two reasons. One, there's so few in numbers that the consequences to our coalition building are going to be minor. Two, because they are just truly the worst. <laughs> shame away (laughs) right right no i mean i was and i don't i I mean i don't i probably in looking back i probably shouldn't have done it but i sent it to uh a girl i was talking to at Mm. the time and uh yeah that may not have been the smartest decision but um no regret no no regrets at all oh well thank you for calling in joe i really enjoyed that little trip down memory lane it was worth it. All right. Yeah. Thank All you. All right. Keep the faith. Have you too. Day. Okay. North, I'm going to do another from the front, the front of the room. How are you doing, North? Unmute yourself and speak your truth. Good. How I'm are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. What's on your mind this evening? Sorry. Uh, I actually didn't listen to your podcast interview because I, I assumed that the, the guest was going to be on this show. So sorry oh, no about worries. that. Um, my, I just had a quick question. Did you guys talk about the factors of the price gap between what oil costs per barrel and what fuel costs at the pump, because I've been looking at like price history Mm -hmm. of what oil costs per barrel um, versus like what it costs at the the fuel pump. And if you look at 2011 all the way through 2014, it's pretty consistently bumping around between a hundred bucks to almost 130 bucks a barrel all through 2011, 2014, which is right where it's at right now. And I do not remember ever paying anywhere near the fuel prices in those mm-hmm. years that we're paying now. So is there a rationale? So you talked a little bit that? about this and I apologize for not being so expert on this. You should definitely listen to the episode, but about how it, has to do with these the like futures pricing and how basically they're pricing this stuff, predicting not like a current um, inability to access oil, but what's going to happen over the coming months. Because right now, in particular, I think it's it's summer, and so the demand isn't as high as it's going to be. Uh, and so there, it, it's about these futures contracts and anticipating that there's going to be bottlenecks down the road and a supply issue down the road. It's, but you're right. Like it's artificial. It's not that they literally can't just sell us right. oil for the price, which is why it's it sparked a question for me about whether or not we should then just go ahead and nationalize oil so that the the profit yeah. incentive to do stuff like this doesn't exist. And we had a bit of a back and forth about he had some skepticism about that because he's Canadian and it feels like it hasn't necessarily worked out entirely well in Canada during the period that oil was nationalized. And I know we didn't have a full on conversation it's- about that. We did do another episode of this podcast about whether we should nationalize the the oil in, in, industry. But go ahead. Is is those is those effects of the futures market affecting the price of uh, oil per barrel? No, or oil at the pump. The there, so your point, the point oil is that you know it's not that the 
the barrel cost is going up, but they're, they're, they're gouging yeah. us now in anticipation of how it's going to be down the line. As, as was my understanding yeah. of it. But again, I, when you said futures I, markets, my eyes like yeah. rolled to the back of my head and I blinked <laughs> out. Yeah. Because you know, you know that when oil goes up even more that they're just going to keep raising the prices at the pump anyways. Right. Like they say, Oh, we're, we're, pre- we're prepping for what's going to happen in the future. But if it gets worse in the future, we're going to end up paying for that too. Like, yeah. I mean, look, I don't know. Let's, let's, I mean, I could Google it real quick. Um, oil prices are dropping, but gas is still expensive. Why? Well, that was from March 15th. I don't know if we want to go back that far, but um, that feels like a whole different world. Were we even fighting with Ukraine? Yeah, we had just, the Ukraine conflict had just started. Um, so it says, filling your tank up isn't cheap right now. Just last week, a barrel of crude topped $130. Since then, the price has dipped below 100 falling off a cliff into correction territory. Meanwhile, at the gas pump, average prices have fallen from 433 a gallon to wait for it, 432 That's right, a whopping difference of a penny. So what gives? Ask any driver, blah, blah, blah. Skip the anecdote. Um, the price drop and its pace are due in part to recent COVID-19 restrictions in China. Closa said they are the fastest growing consumer of refined products in the crude world. After Russia's invasion of Ukraine last month, uncertainty ruled the oil markets. When you don't know whether you can buy oil next week or next month or in three months, you try to lock in your supplies to reduce reduce your risk he said this is what he was this is what Corey was talking about right. traders now have more clarity about the west approach to russia and that's helped drive oil prices lower seeing that reflected as cheaper gas will take time though said kelly sanders an associate professor at who cares the gasoline that we pumped today actually reflects the price of crude oil that refineries purchased weeks ago yeah it's it's all a betting game is the best i can understand it um but if people are interested we can definitely unpack that more in a specific episode cool all right. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Who do we have here? How about, um, oh, I just saw a face I hadn't seen before. Carolyn. Carolyn Williams. I think that's a new avatar. What's on your mind this evening? Hey. Hey. Um, wow. I'm, I'm a little nervous. Um, I feel like I need okay, a sound so effect excited. for when people say they're nervous. Like, I feel like I, I have this instinct to buoy people. But I'm not really sure, you know, like what would do it for you. I don't have a very good arsenal. It's like applause and crickets in this one Biden clip. Stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> but that's not very supportive. <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm just going to go for it. Um, I've been I've been up since four writing on like caffeine and and uh, yeah, the great combination of caffeine and weed to get through a presentation to a client um, <laughs> this morning. So, and now I'm just like still going. Um, and, and actually um, uh, it's funny that I'm in the queue because earlier you were talking with, I believe it was Mark about uh, government contracting and I am a government contractor. Mm. Um, I've been government contracting for five mm-hmm. years. Um, I've worked with uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services on healthcare.gov mm-hmm. and Medicare.gov as a user experience designer. And right now I'm working uh, with the Department of Veterans Affairs on VA.gov as a UX designer. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So do you have any insights for us uh, about how how this world works and, you know, the difficulties and advantages? A little yeah. bit. Yeah. I'm I'm in a very, like, niche world of civic tech which was kind of like 
jump-started by Obama after, you know, the um, disastrous healthcare.gov launch. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and that world is like, there is a lot of oversight. So I can really only speak to that area of, of like what that oversight is. Um, you know, all of our contracts, like all of our, um, when I was working on Medicare.gov, like my designs were approved by the Senate before they went live. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, the GSA is, is like checking, um, the output, um, of, of what all these government contractors are producing and, uh, you know, they're they're looking at the budgets and, and making sure that they are getting their money's mm-hmm. worth. Um, and so usually how contracts work, I'm I'm like very far removed from the contracts world. Thankfully, I've only had to work on one RFP response um, and it was a nightmare and I uh, it was just awful mm. uh, <laughs> because because just the level of like detail that that goes into these um contract responses um but but my understanding of it is that like there's kind of like whispers are put out into the world that a contract there that then an rfp is going to be put out there and and sometimes some there's some like contract vehicles which mean that you that like a company is kind of hired um, like on retainer almost. And, and that's kind of like five-year contracts that are renewable like each year. So, um, you'll have like, you'll work the year and then there'll be option years. Your, your, your work is kind of reviewed after one year Mm -hmm. and then it's decided whether or not you'll continue the next year up to five years. Um, is usually is like kind of typically how a lot of contracts are run. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if that's a change from like healthcare.gov or anything. And I don't know if that's specific to um, uh, civic tech, like more, more like digital um, information technology uh, contracts. but that was not why I, I jumped into the queue. Okay. So um, what, what, what was on your mind this evening before I asked you that? Yeah. Um, uh, so I want to take us all the way back to the beginning of May and the SCOTUS uh, row decision mm-hmm. make. Um, and there was a call in a, a while back, like around that time when um, – I think you made a comment about um, like whether whether or not you uh, have made a decision like in a limit of whether or not a limit should be put on abortion access. And I am a person who has been volunteering in the reproductive justice space for about like 10 years. Um, For seven years, I was a volunteer case manager with Baltimore Abortion Fund. I've worked really closely with National Network of Abortion Funds. Most recently, I was part of a team um, uh, of selected people uh, to come up with, um, uh, like, 
kind of like a, a bill of rights. I, I forget the, the terminology that mm-hmm. we used, but like, um, uh, yeah, for kind of like how we want to approach, how National Network of Abortion Funds wants to approach a post-war, a post-row landscape. And we were starting to work on this like in, in October um, and, and kind of like shaping that future vision. So I was part of that group. So as, as somebody who has lots of experience with um, this world and, and also, um, you know, intimate experience as a, as a case manager speaking with patients um, seeking later abortion care, um, I, was, I was wondering if, if you would like the opportunity to kind of bounce around your thoughts and feelings around um, that issue with me. Well, I, I gotta say, I don't remember saying anything like, I don't know what I would have meant by limits on abortion. I mean, outside of, I think it was related to, to like later abortion care, like, like, Oh, you know, point of viability, 24 weeks, um, kind of, it was, it was in relation to that. Well, yeah, I guess what I'm talking about is the fact that obviously if it's medically indicated life, health of the mother is implicated and all of that, then I don't have any issue with it being a fully term baby. You know, that's, you know, someone's going to die. They're going to die. It is what it is. It's not, no one's, Mm -hmm. no one's carrying babies to term for shits and giggles and then killing them for no reason. But exactly the, the fact that we all kind of appreciate that there does seem to be something macabre about ending a full term viable baby suggests that most of us have some intrinsic or feeling about the viability line being useful. However, the viability line is not great because science is going to get to a point where you can grow the whole thing out of a test tube. So what does it even mean to be viable? And how do you come up with what that ethical line is in terms of what is a cognitive development? What does it mean to be human and conscious and alive? Does it matter at all? Like, should you be able to terminate a full-term baby if that's your decision, even if there's no health reasons for doing so? I mean, I think that those are difficult. I think those are difficult questions and I'm not entirely sure that we're going to resolve them, but what's your take? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as, as somebody, um, who's like spoken with people, um, one-on-one who's, who are like seeking abortion care. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm the, I'm the person who's like, have as many abortions as you want. Um, you know, where I stand is, is like, is a later abortion, the vast majority of, of later abortions are when there's fetal anomalies or a risk to the pregnant person anyway. So, and I don't think that if, like there are regulations around that kind of anyway. And I think that if we, what am I trying to say? I guess like, I just don't care. <laughs> it's what like, like, I, I guess I don't see a world where we wouldn't have those kind of limitations already. If, if we just removed a age of vi- a, a, an age of viability or removed any limit. And I don't see why we wouldn't keep the, I don't know what the right term is. The, the, like, it's not really regulations, but for lack of a better term, the like 
ethical restrictions around terminating a you know fully term fetus without any reason to do so i don't think that doctors would would let that happen um you know there's like met there's like medical ethics that that wouldn't i think allow that to happen so I guess I, that's something that I'm not concerned about. Okay. I, I guess I'm not either. I, I, I'm certainly not sitting here promulgating some law that we need to ban late term okay, abortions. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm, I feel a little bit like in a weirdly oppositional space, but I'm not entirely sure what I'm arguing against since I, the, the way our laws oh, are. Oh no, I, I didn't intend this to be oppositional. The, the, it was, I was just like, like, Oh, like, do you want to discuss? Well, this? the ways our law laws are, structured Roe isn't an invitation to do abortions late term Roe protects states from limiting your ability to to limit abortions in any way up until a certain point after that it's a wild man's land where people are having to make their own independent state by state ethical solution uh, resolutions yeah so the point of Roe is to say no matter what anybody thinks about ethics before a thing is viable you ultimately have that right necessarily and frankly like it or not other countries that we consider to be kind of peer countries in terms of our politics and finances and uh, Western traditions and all of the kind of schmuckety schmuck that the building Shapiro's of the world like to talk about usually have a 15 week ban, which was what was at issue in the Mississippi case. And a weird historical quirk is that it was um, Thurgood Marshall who recommended that we have a longer period and to talk about viability in part because America shout out to our South African friend does not have health care and it, it was harder for American women to find abortion access early enough by 15 weeks and that's what they gave yeah. us more time yeah. so I, all, all I was raising was the idea that like it or not I think most people have some including pregnant women have some moral ambiguity about what happens as it gets later and later and later and I don't necessarily think pretending that doesn't exist is the the best argument for the left. I don't think, yes, cut it out at nine months is necessarily the most rhetorical, <laughs> the best rhetorical argument. Um, it, it, it really concedes ground that nobody, nobody is even arguing the case. People who are getting late term abortions are doing so because it's medically indicated, as you pointed out, um, and that there are Hippocratic oaths and things that come into play at that point, as you pointed out. But because we've used this viability line to, as a starting point for the point at which the rights cannot be infringed upon. I do think it's important to think, well, what happens if science moves the viability line to a point where my own ethics aren't in conflict? Do you know what I mean? Like my own personal ethics do get squeamish mm -hmm. later, but they don't get squeamish earlier. And the viability line could get down to like a week. And I still personally will have no ethical issue with abortion. So what do we do at that point? Should we be trying to think, you know, morally, intellectually about other ways to determine what the line should be to the extent that we're going to have to start defending them because Rose out the window. Potentially. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's a fascinating conversation to, to have. And one that like, I haven't interrogated I, because I've been like, so down in the weeds of, of like mutual aid, um, and that's not something that is, like, that's not something that's being discussed in RJ spaces. Yeah. People are saying also in the chat that, you know, abortion is, C-section is an abortion. You know, it's an abortion burning a pregnancy and that 
if it's viable, it's a moot point because you can just cut it out and save the baby. I mean, that's interesting, right? Because there are, you know, a DNC, there are ways to abort a baby that does not preserve, does not preserve the fetus, obviously. And you can imagine mm-hmm. a world where a woman does not want to go through either childbirth or have, you know, major abdominal surgery and says, I mean, this is, this is like a ridiculous hypothetical, which is why this is like not, you know, but you can imagine a world where someone was like, no, I want to terminate a pregnancy. Let's do a DNC. And, and, and I think again, you would have a public outcry against like the notion of that. I think that's what people imagine when they imagine late term abortions, mm-hmm. which by the way, that's how they're done. Yeah, that like is, that's, that <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's, yeah, it's a multi-day procedure. Yeah. It costs thousands of dollars. Yeah, and it's, it is, you know, it's not great. No one is wanting this. I mean, like, no. that's not anybody's ideal scenario. <laughs> um, not at all. So, yeah, but I appreciate you coming in. It's an interesting conversation. We haven't had a square on abortion. We've, we've had abortion as, as the law, as, you know, from a legal perspective conversation, but not these kind of broader social and um, moral and kind of historical uh, issues and that might be worth doing. I'm sure we're going to get the main, yeah, the real opinion soon. Absolutely. Maybe that'll be a good time to revisit it. Thank you for calling in, Carolyn. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. Just lastly, I want to say I've been watching you on rising and I've been enjoying the, the, the last few shows with you and Robbie have been very enjoyable. Your, your chemistry together. Thank you. I appreciate that, Carolyn. It's, it's been, a, it's, it's a, a good experience. It's been an interesting, it's been an interesting experience. <laughs> it seems, yeah, it's been a journey, but, but I, I want to, I want to, um, yeah, compliment you. I appreciate it. that. I'm glad you're on that journey with us. Cause sometimes I'm hearing these comment sections. It's a lonely road. <laughs> I try to ignore that. Thanks, Carolyn. Keep the faith. You're very welcome. Thanks. All right. Dr. Keisha, you're up next. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind tonight. Dr. Keisha, are you with us? I uh, I think I Hello. am. Hello. How are you this evening? Hi. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. What are what are you preoccupied by this evening? So, I am just over on this app. I just had an amazing discussion yesterday with a colleague. Um, just talking about gun mm-hmm. rights. So, I'm a pathologist and my uh, colleague is a forensic pathologist. So, I thought it was interesting and probably be great for you to kind of dive deeper. Uh, from a forensic pathologist perspective, um, you know, because a lot of people are like guns, no guns, freedom of speech. Um, what is the age? And he was really breaking it down first, the types of guns, what he's seeing when automatic rifles are being used, what it really does to the body. And basically, you know, any of the bullets are killing these people, the number of bullets based on location around the city or county. And then also that there's different solutions depending on um, the type of homicide. Mm. So we just can't say that these mass shootings, of course, that are 2% of uh, most of these killings are, are the problem. And, you know, they're a certain demographic because he's actually seeing that it's not. He's like actually seeing a difference. There's nothing, there is no prototype or some sketch he can draw of the mass shooter that fits all categories. So I thought it was very interesting. Um, I, I just think it's neat getting that perspective from ours, you know, about really just putting stuff. It's the same thing with really with um, what's going on with COVID uh, from a pathology perspective. When I just put stuff into baskets and look at it, it's very interesting on, on how we view things. But, well, help me understand the COVID connection. What are, what are the presumptions that you think are misinformed about COVID? 
So it's been okay. So this is what this has been interesting for me as a pathologist. To me, it's not a vax, anti-vax. Mm-hmm. Me is what I'm seeing with COVID deaths, um, doing autopsies, and what I'm talking with friends is what it's actually doing to the mm-hmm. body. Like so, I actually am seeing the destruction of the lungs. I'm actually seeing what's happening to the brain, seeing what's going on with the body, and it's really almost like a autoimmune phenomena that's also happening with long mm-hmm. COVID. So for me, it's like, do you want to have this happen to you or do you want to see, wait and see the vaccination? So it's a basically to me, it's more of a lesser of two evils than to say, oh, 100 percent, the vaccination is perfect. But what we are seeing is 99 percent of the cases that that I am seeing in reports that I'm seeing with colleagues that were in Florida during that surge is that they were seeing the predominance were people that weren't vaccinated. So it's a layer of protection approach. But autopsies don't lie. The pictures that we take of the bodies, the um, way what we look under the microscope is just what it is. It's it's showing the truth. And I think I wish more people when I show that to people, it really most of the time there, it's a silence, but a silence of, wow, I wish I would have seen it that way. It's the same thing with the bodies when we really don't necessarily show, but he breaks down, you know, this is what happens during autopsy. And if you were to really see it when he has to talk to the parents when they're crying to him, you know, seeing, identifying mm-hmm. a body that you put into a different light. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw the clip of the, the man talking about, um, the kid that was you know decapitated by the bullets. And the, I mean, that's just so, it's so gruesome and horrific. I'm, I'm curious what you make of, um, you know, this discussion about long COVID and people, a lot of people who I now work with at Rising feel very strongly that uh, the long COVID is a boogeyman scare scare tactic um, to keep the government in control and give them the authority to continue their authoritarian overreach. And they feel as though it's akin to like how they perceive restless leg syndrome or how some people perceive lupus as like not a real thing and women being in their feelings, oftentimes women being in their feelings and just being generally unhealthy or depressed or sick and being like having a psychosomatic issue. Um, What do you say to people based on what you're looking at? You know, what should the concerns be about not just long COVID, but but going through COVID at all in terms of the long-term effects effects on the body? Yeah, definitely. So I don't want to have a badge of honor saying I had COVID because of the long-term effects also in Mm. children. So my friend who's a colleague and we talk a lot about long COVID and what she's seeing. And also there's that multi-inflammatory system that we see in mm-hmm. children. Wait, um, I don't actually, that, I said, mm-hmm, but I don't actually know what that means. What do you mean there's a multi-inflammatory so, system in kids? So MERS or the multi-inflammatory system is, is what some of these children that may have had COVID symptoms, but were testing positive for COVID are presenting late mm-hmm. later with almost like this auto, like achy autoimmune rash phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And that is because of COVID. So that's what a lot of children were actually presenting with earlier on with the Delta. Mm. Okay. Now with the long COVID, some people actually aren't even saying they're sick. Literally, they didn't know they were sick. They can get an antibody test or find out they had COVID or exposed to COVID and they're getting these long COVID symptoms. Um, the thing about these is if, even in the brain, um, I had a neurologist and she says what she's seeing a lot is varied from people that are saying brain fog to people that literally this is how bad it is. I know two doctors that have had to stop working because of long mm-hmm. COVID. One, and actually three, one of them, the Dr. Lorna Breen Foundation, she was the doctor, emergency medicine doctor, right? Got COVID from a patient, was working, 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 very energetic, upbeat person, 
and she got like a neurological depression uh, from it, and she died by suicide. Oh my goodness! And because of that, yes, have you heard of the Dr. Lorna Breen Act? Uh, President Biden just signed it. Actually, um, is and now it's amazing. I met uh, the brother-in-law, um, and we had a discussion because he was talking about he really wanted to get mental health out, but they really think she got something from COVID that that changed her, and she just went downhill from then. So that's really the act that's going to help healthcare providers be able to get. A mental health support and awareness, because usually if we report it, we end up, it could be go, go against mm. our licensing, our credentialing. So yeah, but other symptoms like back to the long mm-hmm. COVID, um, I know another doctor, cardiologist, no longer able to work because she was a cardiologist, brain function, fatigue, mm. um, neuropathy. Uh, there's another lady who is a psychiatrist who no longer can work. She, when you talk to her, her lung function, basically her lung destruction is so bad that she's on oxygen currently um, in the hospital every other few days. We really don't know how to treat all these symptoms. The The variety of symptoms is crazy. And my immune, immunologist friend, she's just like, it's basically the biggest autoimmune trigger of all times is how she calls mm. COVID. The, the yeah, that's problems that's the problem because autoimmune diseases for a long time have had the skepticism around them from like medical skeptics, you know, whether it's lupus, whether it's, you know, there's a lot of things that it's, it's difficult. It's, it's, it's unfortunate because it's, it, 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 it puts COVID in a category of diseases that people who want to dismiss everything. That's not like a leg on the street, you know, like your leg detached from your body as like a real complaint. Like this is exactly the kind these are the kind of symptoms that people can very easily dismiss as psychosomatic. Oh, you're depressed. Guess what? It's depressing out here. It's not because it's COVID. Oh, you, you know, you're tired. Oh, okay. You're tired. You're just lazy. Get up and work. Oh, your cognitive fog. How can you prove it? Maybe you're just getting older. Maybe you're menopause. Maybe you're PMS. I mean, those are the kind of things that I, I unfortunately it's a, it's a, it's a cluster of symptoms that skeptics are likely to not take seriously. That's my fear. That's a lot of our fear. That's why, you know, there's a lot of studies. There is a group, a long COVID group, because I don't want people to be able to now feel that they can't get the help they need, that their bosses are going to allow them to get the time off or the treatment that Mm -hmm. they need. Um, That's another thing. And then a lot of doctors that don't know about it. So, you know, where are you going to get your second opinion? Where do you go if a doctor dismisses you? But I can tell you from under the studies that are being done and those, unfortunately, that may have died, um, and the changes that we see under the microscope that they're real, they're real changes. And we just need to make sure we can get uh, people the treatment they need and make it more aware. So that's really my fear is that long COVID is no joke. The long COVID, I feel for these people. I hear them every day. People sharing me their stories, colleagues as well, and those that have died. Um, and I just want to be able to to get as much help we can and seek as much information we can from studies. Yeah. I have a, I have a friend who's a pulmonologist from high school and I heard him. He actually, I didn't know he did media hits, but my brother texted me like two days ago. Oh my God, Ashraf is on the news. So I turned it on and he was, he was oh, talking yes. about, um, how, you know, they have running out of all of this equipment to treat all these respiratory systems, like, like currently not like peak COVID. And at the time when we were all worried about oxidometers or whatever, whatever it was, He's like, this is, this is something that we're going through right now because there's a spike in hospitalizations that's not really being discussed. And it's, I'm in, a, I'm in this weird position where, you know, I, I understand, like, I, 
if people, people act like, like politically being in these mixed political spaces, like rising COVID is such a polarizing issue. And it is curious to me that the, the valence of COVID skepticism is all about the idea that COVID is going to, is being employed to expand government power and not at all. The government is ever going to downplay COVID because it wants to, to, you know, free the markets up to have businesses open and do what it's going to do, regardless of your health implications. To me, a good skeptic would be skeptic about both eventuality, like both, both things. Your, your concern for your health and thinking that COVID is real and that you want to do the best to protect yourself and your family doesn't necessarily mean you support lockdowns, doesn't necessarily mean anything, but you might personally want to mask. You might personally want to take vitamin D supplements. You might personally want to do whatever you're going to do. And it is weird to me that I feel like on the show, any conversation about long COVID, it's like you're an op. It's like perceived to be, you know, you know, shilling for big pharma, even if you're not even talking about pharmaceutical interventions. And it's such a difficult conversation to have. And I've been thinking about why the show doesn't have more doctors on. I'm I'm hearing you talk and I'm like, oh, I'm going to come be a COVID expert on rising sometime (laughs) because we're all just talking past each other. And and I think in some ways shoring up the cultural um, parameters of this conversation completely separate and apart from any scientific knowledge. And I want to talk to someone who's opened up a human and looked at their lungs and can tell us really what the potential consequences of this are and you can decide you don't care and you're willing to shoot your shot you don't want to make a mask uh, wear a mask or whatever that's fine do what you want to do but like i want to i want to know what is actually there and not just be ruled by these like weird political vibes listen that's what i've been starting to do this year as a pathologist we're behind on the microscope but i'll tell you i've been using it on clubhouse and showing people the pictures Mm -hmm. the change in their thing is like oh I'm like, this is like, basically, if you remember a long time ago, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. That's why I'm like, okay, this is your normal lungs. This is what your lungs look like after COVID. Or this is what it looks like with cancer. People really change. I've gone into rooms with people that are complete skeptics. And mind you, we're separate entities. Medicine from the CEOs. The doctor's literally at the bottom of that totem pole. We're just doing what we want. Now, how it gets filtered from the hospital and decisions, and sometimes they make decisions that we don't even recommend, and then how it gets to the public are, are, are where the problems are. It's a telephone that's just getting messed up. But I can tell you as a doctor, what I see under the microscope and when I share people with that, even skeptics, they have nothing to say. They're like, oh, shit. I'm like, yeah, and, this is what I see. What can and what about vaccine that? side effects? So I will say, <clears throat> I've mentioned this before. I don't believe I've ever gotten COVID. I've never had a positive test. But when I got my booster shortly before Thanksgiving, I got very sick after having no symptoms from my from either of my two shots, I got very sick and experienced a shortness of breath where, you know, if I changed the pace of my breathing, going from stagnant to running, I would have a coughing fit. You know, you feel like the, like at the top of your range and an inability to breathe in more without coughing that feeling. And I had that for like months and I scheduled a cardiologist appointment and went about a month or so ago. But by that time, the symptoms had gone away but it's back now as of like two weeks ago <laughs> and I guess I need to go see maybe a pulmonologist and not a cardiologist and they cleared me but I'm curious you know the cardiologist actually took my concerns very seriously and he was talking about 
these incidences of uh, myocardial issues with young males in particular. And he had me do a stress test and all of this stuff. And I wonder, I, I feel like in all fairness, we should have a conversation about what the competing risks are from vaccine, from vaccines in your view. Yeah. So that's where it happens is some people, first of all, the, the side effects or the, the expected response from a vaccine is you're getting exposed to something, your body's going to react. You might get a fever. And of course, during this time, it, this is to me is like the high dose vaccine. So your reactions to that are going to be higher than you've ever had from the vaccine. Mm-hmm. All right. We're in a uh-huh. pandemic. We've had over a million deaths in the United States. We've got to make sure we get mm-hmm. this right. So your uh-huh. expected response is going to be normal from that. But where the confusion is, is where people, people have died and they're dying from other things, not from COVID. But because this is in the limelight, you're hearing about it. Um, then you hear about VAERS. VAERS is where anyone can call in. People have called in and said their whole COVID on VAERS. That's not where you're actually getting the true reports of the vaccine. So according to reports, according to all the autopsies, the deaths that are happening with people vaccination are less than 1%, far and few between. It just happens that the, the risk of someone dying of something else after vaccination or immediately after is from other But what about not death? Um, what about the studies death. about, you know, these car, um, the myocarditis, yeah. for mm-hmm. example. The myocarditis that has happened, has happened in young males, has been, again, it's 10 times more likely to get myocarditis from right. COVID than from the vaccine. The myocarditis that has happened for the vaccine has been mild. No one has died from it. The hospitalization has been less than one day, and it is almost like a very mild inflammation of the heart. The myocarditis that happens from the virus, completely different. This is where you're seeing destruction of the lung Mm. tissue. These are the ones that are in the hospital for more than three days. These are the ones where you actually have had death, up to 5-10% death from viral myocarditis, the pyoiditis from the um, actual virus. There has not been death from um, the vaccine for myocarditis. So that's where it is. It's a completely different type. It's like getting a little bruised versus literally internal mm-hmm. bleeding um, to me is a, is a severity from the two. So there, yes, they happen, but it, it, it's when it gets confused, muddied, and, and people take stuff out of it. So to me, it really is. Um, my, my colleague says, you know, take the blue pill mm-hmm. or the red pill. But, you know, do you want to take the 99% chance of getting COVID and then getting long COVID and the things? Or also, I have a mother who has mm-hmm. cancer. Do I want to take the chance of giving that to yeah. her? So to me, I think about those people. I think about the children my daughter goes to school with that are immunocompromised that want to go to school, and I and she could give COVID to them. So when she got vaccinated, she said, I did my part, Mommy. I did my part to help this public health. And that's Yeah, this came up on the show the other day, and maybe I lost my cool a little bit. You know, one of my co-hosts asked me, you know, they said, you know, masking goes forever. You know, COVID's not going anywhere, so how long do you plan to mask? And I was like, well, I don't know, but I do know I come to work every day or three days a week and I have to bare my face because of the nature of my job to my makeup artist. And one of the you know temporary makeup artists that has been in, you know, her husband is fighting lung cancer right now. So <laughs> maybe this is a glib response, but I'm certainly going to mask as long as I'm interfacing with people who could suffer enormous consequences because I like, I don't know don't want to wear a mask on the elevator for two seconds going in and out of the building every day. So I, I, I really appreciate you. Um, I really appreciate you uh, talking to us, Dr. Keisha, and let me know if you, uh, 
Hit me up in the DMs if you if you want yeah, to come and be a guest on on Rising because I do think we need more medical professionals in this conversation and less punditry. Would love to definitely. I will reach out to you. Please do. All right, Take thank care. you. Keep the faith. Let's go, Jonathan. I haven't called on you in a while because you are a repeat player and you're so supportive and you're so engaged in all of the places that I feel like you can handle it and you understand. But also, I want to validate you. Because I really do appreciate your engagement and you give me suggestions and you, you're you just like such a wonderful community member. How are you doing this evening? I am doing quite well and I do understand and I encourage, you know, people that are in the audience that were nervous to try and get in the caller queue to go ahead and do it because it's super easy and it's fun. And it's just like being part of the show. <laughs> I see you doing that too. And you're just you're so it. delightful. And I I feel like we're like on a team, even though I, I obviously don't know you actually. <laughs> but I see you in the chat and I see you on Twitter and I see you in the comments on Patreon. And I'm like, yeah, John, I know that Jonathan's in there moderating conversations and giving responses that I would be giving and being helpful and supporting people when they have tech issues. All of this stuff, Jonathan's always there. And I just want to say how much I appreciate you. Well, I appreciate being noticed, but uh, I was especially thrilled that uh, you know you had uh, Corey on, and you've got uh, Bottle says he's got uh, he was scheduled to record with you this week. I don't know if it's already been done or not. No, but... not yet. I ended up going ahead and blocking in Corey, but we're gonna get we're gonna get Professor Kaboob in here soon because he he was traveling this week, but, so yeah, he wasn't I... able to record uh, for Monday's ep- for today's episode. Yeah, that that much uh, I know. He was uh, having some uh, some travel issues, actually. But uh, I did send him a a clip of your your frustrating interaction with the with the congressman, and I'm like, <laughs> she needs some jujitsu moves here. <laughs> and like like I said, that was that was one of the things I was trying to convey to you via DM. Like uh, RP has a standing offer to uh, you know set you up with you know things like uh, you know private Zoom meetings. With you know we have a whole uh, stable of economists, not just bottle, uh, you know, including some of the names Corey dropped, like, uh, you know, John Harvey, the, the cowboy mm-hmm. economist, uh, who can, who can help, uh, you know, get you comfortable, um, you know, pushing back on some of those really bad takes that some of those finance journalists that they have on the rising have, um, you know, and there's, there's things like, uh, you know, even some of the stuff that, uh, it's reasonable for a lot of people not to not to know and understand because some of this stuff is is nuanced and the the, the waters have been muddied since like the 1970s. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, you t- we were talking about Benjamin Applebaum earlier. He just wrote a book called like The Rise of the Economist. Like this stuff goes back a long way, and a lot of these actors that have been muddying the waters, you know, people like Milton Friedman. Uh, who are real big on public education, like, you know, this this is a project that's been going on for a long time and it's pervaded the discourse in a really bad way. And, um, you know, there's stuff like one of the things that, uh, you know, you John Harvey's always talking about is in those situations where there is, you know, demand push inflation, uh, it typically resolves itself very quickly because those, you know, on the demand side of the economy with ordinary people, they do respond to, to price shocks and things Mm -hmm. like that. Like that, like it tends to correct itself very, very quickly when it's the supply shock like this, it just sticks and sticks and Mm -hmm. sticks. And if you're not going to address the supply problem, uh, you know, the, you know, it, it, it gets like, 
their logic is as stupid as it sounds. Like if it's a supply shock problem and then you're going to go punish ordinary people on the demand mm-hmm. side, which has no connection to the supply shock mm-hmm. problem. And then you're like, derp, why didn't mm-hmm. it work? Well, that's how you get things like stagflation, like all the worst aspects of a recession, except without the mm-hmm. price drop, like the unemployment and all of that stuff. And those commodities are still super, super high. And, you know, that's like they're like Biden almost sounds like he's about to make the same mistake that was made in the in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, they're, they're getting ready to do it all over again. Yeah. And it's like it it's looking pretty dark, to be honest. Like these things are not going to go down because the Fed is tinkering with stuff. And, you know, you're like, honestly, you're, you're one of the only people that's out there, uh, you know, in a kind of a, a high profile spot of any sort that's really pushing back on that. Like once in a while, some of our MMT friends get on, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, I have a, a friend uh, that I, I'm friends with on Twitter, this guy Paul Gambles, who's a, you know, a financial, uh, a British financial consultant working in, in Thailand, and he gets on MSNBC once in a blue moon. But, uh, you know, by and large, like, there's nobody in any kind of high-profile position that's actually pushing back on these these really kind of stupid yeah, narratives guys, but, like that. You know, this and is it's... the problem, Jonathan, because we're kind of fucked, because that girl never even took econ. <laughs> And, you know, I'm trying, but like what I, what I really want for Fidel is for him to come like on rising. Like it's frustrating to me, to me, and I'm going to try to get more involved in production. I confess that I don't really, like I just kind of show up and do the topics that are suggested until this week. I'm starting to try to make more suggestions in terms of who comprises panels and suggest new segments more because it is frustrating to me fundamentally Hosts should not have the responsibility of being experts on everything. It just doesn't it doesn't work that way. You're not going to get good or interesting coverage and it just puts too much onus on us. You need to make sure for any kind of issue specific take. I mean, if we're just talking about like Elon Musk and vibes like whatever. But if we're talking about something like inflation, there needs to be economists and they need to be representing two sides of an issue. I'm not saying just stack it with my people. I want my people to have to respond to the most common arguments. And the person who's most able to make the most common arguments is someone who is on the other side of the issue. And to me, every panel should be like that. We had a, we had a panel today about uh, Chesa Boudin and, you know, I had pushed back against, they had first booked two more conservative voices on it and I pushed back, but they ended up booking two left voices on it, which is also not a good idea in my mind. It doesn't make for an as interesting panel. So I, in my, if I had my druthers, every time we did an inflation segment, Fidel Kabu would be on or Cory Doctor would be on or Stephanie Kelton would be on somebody who can do a better job than me. And I'm, I'm happy to do it in, you know, in, in absentia, but <laughs> The reality is like the problem with our whole news culture is that pun- people over rely on pundits like to be making these cases and I'm never going to do it. That's why I love bad faith. I love being able to just ask questions because I don't know. And I'm trying to learn along with everybody else and rely on that expertise in this show. You know, I learn from you guys and you guys come to me with questions and then I go back and find some experts and I feel like we're all just, we're sourcing things together and figuring things out together being on rising, it's like I feel very strongly that there needs to be more actual experts in the room, especially when we're talking about things like COVID that rely on a certain degree of medical expertise. 
and when we're talking about the economy. Because also, I don't have the same credibility as an economist who says something. If I say, excuse me, oh, sorry, <laughs> LOL, I just ate dinner before this. If I say, um, you know, uh, the economy doesn't work like a household budget and you pay your taxes and they go into, they basically zero out of your account and the government prints more money. Someone turns to me and says, Brianna, you're doing hocus pocus MMT. That's not real. And I say, yes, it is real. And they say, no, it's not real. And I say, yes, it is real. And people just choose not to believe me. If it's at least an economist, then we have a starting point. Yes. And uh, like, frankly, you don't need to know everything. And keep in mind, like, I'm basically self-taught. Okay, Steve Grumbine, who runs Real Progressives, is self-taught, and all these economists trust him completely. And, uh, you know, that is, like, you really, all you need to know in your position is a few jujitsu moves, like, what to push back on in a limited fashion, because you've already got time constraints. Nobody's going to force you to talk for, you know, to expound for 30 minutes on, uh, you know, how the, uh, the, the, the accounting of, of federal budgeting, you know, between the Treasury and the Fed and the Congress works like nobody's nobody's going to nobody's going to make you do that. But we also like we can set you up with a bunch of people who can answer those questions real easy. And that's part of the jujitsu, too. And like that's like that's all like that's all they want to set you up to do is like know who to ask, know when to when to send a little karate chop. You know, and uh, and and that's it just to where you feel comfortable, like pushing back on that and, uh, you know, uh, knowing uh, who to bring on if they want to talk about a certain subject, I guess. Well, I appreciate that, Jonathan. I always appreciate your suggestions and thank you for calling in today. Oh, thanks for having me. All right. Let's go with Shelly. Let's go with another from the front of the queue. How are you doing this evening, Shelly? Hi, Brie. I'm doing well. I'm having, I'm experiencing my first vacation in four years. Oh, well, congratulations to you. (laughs) Um, I would, I would have preferred Biden telling me I'm an idiot. Oh, that's not it. I was going to hit you so fast. That's that's more like my everyday. Now I feel like I'm back at work. Um, (laughs) What's on your mind tonight, Shelly? We've been... Well, I had, there was something else that I was going to ask you about or talk to you about, but there have been a lot of people that have been talking about healthcare, mm-hmm. just that have come on and, you know, I'm also seeing it in the chat. Um, and I just, I have kind of a weird job. Uh, I am a healthcare worker. I'm a cath lab tech. So whenever people come in with heart attacks, mm. I deal with heart attacks. So I deal with a lot of emergencies. I deal with a lot of death. Mm. Um, I've been doing that for about 11 years, and about four years ago, I got tossed over into a revenue job. So I am intimately connected with the revenue cycle of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I have multiple meetings with, like, the CFO, the CEO, all of the revenue people. So I, I do have an understanding about healthcare reimbursement and how that stuff works. And so I was just going to say, if you, if anyone has any questions about healthcare reimbursement, I, I'll, I'll be happy to hang out and like answer them. Or Bree, if you have anything that yeah, you want to talk about, Shelly, tell us what is what is one of the more galling things that you've observed. I think everyone likes a good healthcare horror story to help buoy us 
um, and convince people to come onto our side and, and join the side of the healthcare for all fight? Yeah, well, I, I will have to say one of, before I get into that, one of the things that absolutely disillusioned me about Bernie mm-hmm. um, initially was the fact that I had smuggled out a entire data cache from my hospital. You could have manipulated that data to give you anything that you wanted. Um, and I offered it to the Bernie well, campaign. What do you mean? I don't understand. What do you mean? Like, what would I have wanted? What could you do with the data cache? Reimbursement data. Like, you could have fingered particular high-profile insurance companies and shown how corrupt they were. Mm. There, there's tons of things that you could have done with it. You could have shown how people that were on Medicaid were being built, um, that they were being exploited and um, sent to collection. Like, all the stuff I had was a complete exposure of essentially the healthcare insurance system. And I offered that up. I, I don't have any connections. So I just tried to email the campaign and it's not necessarily Bernie Sanders's fault personally, but the people that he had working for him didn't recognize, like after I'd written like a very, very long email saying like, this is what I have. This is how I can help with everything. And they said, Oh, great. Thanks. Would you like to donate? Mm. So that was kind of like the first time that I was like, oh, shit, they're really like the, the campaign isn't really all that serious. Well, you guys, but, you guys gotta um, underst- I, I, I really want everyone to visualize what a campaign is. It is not some sophisticated hive mind where everyone's parsing all this, these emails that are coming in. There are a bunch of individuals in a room at the IKEA desks that have been set up on the fly with laptops in front of them. And emails are coming in to different departments and getting funneled around to each other. Oh, is this a, here's a, this guy's an elected official in Tennessee, so maybe we should forward it to the political department. Oh, no, but they're, you know, black, so let's, I mean, we didn't have a black department, but they're Latinos, let's send this to the Latino press secretary, or let's send this to the, and then there's all of this cross things and people, things get fallen through the cracks. I can literally tell you there was not a person who had the capacity or the job description to do anything at all with that information. Like I'm trying to imagine who would have done what with it. Nobody. The policy department wasn't working on that. Like there was just nobody. Campaigns aren't built for that. Journalists are built for that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's kind of what I'm talking about. I'm I'm talking about like, I remember at the time being like, oh my God. And then kind of like rehashing it like a week after I got the disappointment. And I was like, oh, this is just some person that was responsible for checking. You know, there are 15 people that are responsible for checking the general email account. And there's kooks, kooks every day (laughs) who email in with like, oh, I think that, you know, when I was a lawyer, we got all these emails when I was a clerking rather, all these emails about how I don't think I should have to pay taxes because here's this admiral, admiralty law. That's like, it's like that kind of stuff. And like well-meaning people, but like you, the, the amount of time it takes to process and figure out if something's legitimate or not is yeah. not amount of time that exists in the campaign. But I wonder, did you ever try to talk to any journalists about it? Um, I, I, I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just never got a response, but also at the same time, it's like, I just sent it to the general Washington post inbox, the general New York times, the general Politica, like I just sent them to general inboxes. So I know that they got overlooked, mm-hmm. but regardless, 
um, I, I'm not meaning to sidetrack it by my, by my own personal, like, journalist depressed me, <laughs> you know, type of thing. Um, I, I think one of the things that kind of drives me crazy about the uh, healthcare reimbursement industry is we spend a lot of time talking about big pharma and um, how they over they overcharge for drugs and, and all that stuff. Meanwhile, we don't talk about the medical device industry. If you really want to get into some of the most perverse systems in our healthcare insurance industry, then you would look at medical devices. And I'm talking about things like cardiac devices, like pacemakers and ICDs, and how the indications have been consistently lobbied and changed to where now 30% of the population qualifies for a 30 grand device. Mm -hmm. And they keep like trying to drive those indications down where if you just have a skipped heartbeat, boom, you get an ICD. Mm. It, so the medical device industry is almost more corrupt than the pharmaceutical mm. industry. Other and, and we don't talk about that. We always rail against pharma. We never rail against medical devices. That's For so example, there's one. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say there is one device that I will absolutely if I could actually be a part of a company, I would be. That's how much I believe in the device. It's called an Impella. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if anyone's seen the commercials, because I have seen the commercials, where they advertise this Impella device. And what it is, is it's essentially, it kind of circulates blood for you. So if your heart's in really bad shape, then you can have this device. And it will circulate the blood for you, let your heart rest. And I've seen people that we thought were dead be revived by this device. Wow. So it's it's the real thing. But at the same time, it's a depending on the model that you get, it's twenty five to thirty five thousand dollars. That mm. I know it doesn't cost that mm. much to make. Mm-hmm. I know it doesn't. And that is what the hospital pays. Mm. And. So that's what I'm so everyone talks about, like the hospitals kind of being corrupt. The hospitals are kind of a victim as well, mm. which is one of the reasons why I support Medicare for all mm-hmm. just for that reason, because hospitals are continually put in this position of having to overcharge for their services because you have all these private insurance companies that are trying everything that they can do to short the hospital. Yeah. And who does that fall back on? It falls back on people that have no insurance. And I'm telling you, I cannot tell you how many times at three o'clock in the morning I have I have had to work on someone, get called in for a heart attack at midnight, and then they code and we do CPR. We crack their fucking ribs. We do everything to where they're just... They're just left devastated. And then I have to call in the family and have to watch them mourn. And almost every single time, it is someone that hasn't been to a physician for 25 years. Mm. They're usually rural and they don't have, and and they've lived such a hard life. They look like they're 80, Mm. but they're 50. Mm. And they don't qualify for Medicare. Mm. I've seen it too often. Mm. We have to have Medicare for all for those reasons. Yeah. Mm. 
but then one of the other things that I think is um, as far as like the system itself, I would say you, we, we talk a lot about hospital bills and you'll see people get these outrageous bills mm-hmm. for a hundred grand and they had, you know, a, a hangnail. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens is that every single hospital um, whatever insurance companies agree to operate inside that hospital, they all go into a contract negotiation with the hospital. And so at any given time, the hospital is trying to re like negotiate these contracts. There are, I, I, I don't know the exact amount, but if you can imagine 5,000 different, what we call CPT or procedure codes or DRGs, whatever it is, DRGs is more of an inpatient thing. But if you're talking about like a procedure, there's like 3,000 of them. The private insurance companies enter into contract negotiations on each one of those procedures. So hospitals often get distracted by sort of like the big dollar procedures. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones that they focus on. Meanwhile, all the other procedures Like we have, we do one procedure where I work that the supplies alone to do the procedure are about $10,500. And we have around, the last I looked at my data, around seven private insurance companies that pay us four grand. Mm. So we lose money every single time that we do that procedure with that insurance company, but that's the negotiated price. But the hospital didn't realize that they undercut them on that procedure. And they do that on every procedure, every single procedure they can pay less on. They will. Yeah. And then we wonder why healthcare doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, one of the most interesting cases I worked on as a clerk involved um, a suit uh, to a major drug company who was being accused of misrepresenting the guidelines for when the drug needed to be prescribed. And it's a very, very, very common drug that like basically everybody over 40 takes. And it uh, basically there were guidelines and there were cut points and guidelines were not what the medical indication for the drug was the cut points were, but they were broader and higher and basically allowed for the drug to be prescribed at a, at an earlier stage at a, at a lower cholesterol level, basically than, than the actual cut points. And by pushing guidelines over cut points in their marketing materials, the accusation was that the company had had created millions and millions and millions of more prescriptions of this drug than were medically indicated. And that because the biggest, you know, the government was the bigger, biggest buyer of this drug that it, it manifested in like millions and millions and millions of dollars of like fraud on the government. And it was a key TAM action that was brought. It's a key TAM. allows you to bring a claim on behalf of the government when the government decides not to bring the claim itself and you get like a third of the damages. And it was a very good case in my view. My judge felt differently, <laughs> but it was a very good case in my view um, that, and I think about it all the time because emblematic of the kind of things that happen all the time. And there's this perception that I experienced this when talking about the case, there's this perception that well, doctors know what they're doing. 
everybody is prescribing things in an efficient way. Everything's being reimbursed in, in an efficient way. Um, there's no gaming of the system that's happening because doctors are doctors and scientists and it's all above board. And that could just not be further from the truth. And so when you talk about these medical pushing, pushing certain kinds of medical devices, even if they're useful, charging high amounts for them, knowing that people are willing to pay whatever they're going to pay to stay alive, you know, it, that really resonates with me. I have also weirdly encountered several very affluent medical device salesmen recently, and it has been confusing to me. And now I'm getting some clarity. <laughs> Like, I did not know this was such a lucrative career. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, but I appreciate you calling in. I really enjoyed hearing from you, Shelly. Yeah. Um, any Anytime, if anyone, you, anyone here can message me if you need any help with navigating healthcare reimbursement or if you are facing a medical bill that you are worried about paying, I will try to use my knowledge, which is limited. I'm not an expert, but I will try to use my knowledge to help you fight your medical bill. That's, that's very good of you. Thank you. You guys are also generous with each other. It's really a lovely thing to, to, to witness. Thank you, Shelly. Keep the faith. All right, Adrian, what's on your mind this evening? Adrian, can you unmute yourself? Hello. Hey, how you doing, Adrian? What's in your mind? Hold on one second. Okay. So I'm having this very interesting night. I ordered mm-hmm. pizza, and my friend, my friend ordered pizza, and so we're kind of been on the phone. Well, I've been listening to the call in, waiting for it to mm-hmm. come in, and finally somebody comes. They drop it off. She buzzes them. She buzzes them in. And then the, the pizza never shows up. Like, it's not a knock. We're in an apartment or whatever. So then she's like, well, where's the pizza? So she texts the person back. They left the pizza at the front and then just took a picture of it and said it was delivered. So just imagine a very large apartment complex. And then there's just a pizza box in front of, like, the leasing office, which is closed. <laughs> it's just the shit show. Yo, that, that, that's been happening. I mean, like, look, I understand that this is nobody's you know these people are hustling out here and it's it's rough and stuff but i have noticed a pattern of a lot of deliveries getting dropped off at the front desk as opposed to to the door recently and i don't know if there's like a policy change if that's gonna be the policy change and like policy change the policy that's how it was during covid right where they weren't letting people up into buildings and stuff but what it feels like is people are just through <laughs> people are through <laughs> people are done and i Listen, and we're like experiencing this through this age of the the great resignation. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm really trying to be as compassionate as possible because I know that people are understaffed. I mean, overworked mm-hmm. facilities are understaffed, and for a number of different reasons. And so, like, I'm trying to be, you know, I'm working with people, but <laughs> it's like, why would you leave a pizza on, on the, the floor? floor? And this <laughs> Not is, on like, the floor. In, on, <laughs> on the floor, literally. And I live in the city of Atlanta, and so, like, you know, at, at Ooh, night, roaches, the roaches Ooh. come out. Yeah, so I'm walking out, like my friend are literally out and I are walking outside just scaling the side of a building looking for a pizza and there was a police officer who rode by and I told my friend, I go, should I ask him if he's seen a pizza? She was like, let that go, Adrian, let that go. <laughs> so it's, it's just a mess, but there's so much that's been talked about. I will share as much as we can get through and then, you know, hope to make it um, on another call in, but 
one of the things I do kind of want to circle back to like the reparations mm-hmm. piece. I definitely appreciated your point about like sometimes at the, when we have these conversations about reparations, people do pretend like, what will we do? Where does this mm-hmm. money go? And where are all the black people? I'm right and here. I am a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right here. Hey, JK, JK. <laughs> we're right here. Okay, um, but you know, I'm a mm-hmm. teacher, and what's interesting is the schools are segregated. Mm-hmm. And so, when I walk into a building, I'm working a, a a summer program. I walk into the building, and every single child was mm-hmm. black. Why are we acting like we cannot find black people in a segregated country? Where if you turn on one side of the road, it's literally got a, it's the same road, but half of it has a different name because that's where the black people are supposed mm-hmm. to live. I just don't understand why we can't, why people are acting like they can't find it. But of course it is to delay actually moving a conversation forward about reparations. So that's just kind of one thing. And two, you know, whenever I engage people with this conversation, they're literally floored because I'm like, it doesn't, it can be a check. But it can be whatever we write the policy up to be. And people are, like, mystified by me saying that. But we could just, you know, do what Joe Biden said he was going to do and cancel the debt of anybody who graduated from an HBCU. Mm-hmm. That's a start. Or we could give, you know, that's a start. And that's what Joe Biden said. And he's supposed to be the conservative middle guy who can do a lot of things and isn't mm-hmm. doing anything. But a whole nother conversation on that. So there's ways that we could do this that that do not really take a lot of time. And so... I appreciated your candor on that point um, as well. There was another part in the conversation on the call-in where you talked about, like, the messaging coming from Republicans. And I've explained this to friends. I'm like that political friend who is always just kind of thinking about politics. And they're like, hey, just pass the red line. <laughs> it's you and, was it Mark? You uh, and Mark who are real fun at parties? <laughs> probably, yeah, yeah, something like that. But, um no, we uh, hold on. Sorry, <laughs> we 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 can't go inside. Thank you. Yeah, you have a great night. So look, I my friend and I we were trying to deal with this whole Papa John thing. <laughs> Not Papa John. So Not Papa John. You're about John. to have the cops arrest you over some racist Papa John's pizza. <laughs> you know, but listen, that was a complete joke because I was never going to have to engage the uh, police with that nonsense. Absolutely not. So now I'm at this Wendy's and I'm just out here trying to be on calling with my best life. <laughs> and this woman lets her windows down. It's a line outside of this place. The woman lets her window down and she's like, can we go inside? Hey, you know, I know I'm black, but I don't work here. <laughs> maybe you just assume that I'm supposed to, I don't know, but I'm just somebody who literally pulled over because I was like, oh, I'm on college. It's time to Adrian, do this. Adrian, we are on a journey with you right now. <laughs> you are on a journey with me, but this is what happens. Okay, one little side note. I'm a Leo too. Yes. I've heard you mention this before. We just have that natural <laughs> tell a story vibe. It's never just how was your day. I have friends who like when I say how was your day, they were like it was good. And then when they say, well, how was your day? I was Listen, like, no, I started out with really bad. And they're annoyed. I'm like, look, you know who I am. You know, I've got a great story. And it is what it is. Oh, uh, I'm so glad you called, Adrian. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay, look, so let's just finish up with, because it's getting mm-hmm. late. Um, let's, I'm going to give you a shout out because I, I was not aware of the comment section of um, writing. Mm. And you said, made a comment. You said, I'm trying not to look at the comments. And I've heard Ryan say something similar mm-hmm. as well. And I was like, well, let me go ahead and look into the comments. <laughs> now, 
as a I'm a researcher and a doctor mm-hmm. um, studying educational policy. And so I was keen in on a, an interview you did with Crystal and Kyle on their podcast where you said, I'm always going to the comment section because that's where you're getting a lot of like honest and real mm-hmm. feedback from regular people. And so I've been trying to do a little bit more of that, but I kind of stepped away from it. So I went in the comment section of the one, the video where you and Robbie were having a little bit of a debate about the trans issue. And when I tell you, I was so floored. It was like, if I had not listened to that video, I would have thought that you had said some really wild mm-hmm. shit. Like, give every, everybody should be trans. And this, <laughs> like, it literally was just like, hey, he's like, well, parents won't give their, let their kids walk to the corner stairs because they're safety, but they're giving them these drugs. And the retort of, well, they're giving them the care that they need because there is a high risk for suicide. What's your response to that? And then it's just like, right, right, right. Well, pivot to something else. So I give you your kudos. Keep doing what you That do wasn't it. even one of the worst comments. I mean, that's not even, I mean, that's like a, th- look, there are, that's not even the worst. I'll just say that's not even the worst comment section. The worst ones are when it's like not even at all a, an especially uh, spicy issue. It's it'll be like it'll be like um, you know we'll be talking about mask mandates or something, and I'll offer you know uh, okay well you know I do wear a mask. <laughs> you know I didn't say I was pro mandate. I didn't say I just said like yeah like I I wear a mask in the Uber. And in the grocery store, I don't go in that many public spaces these days, but when I'm in the grocery store, CVS, Uber, elevator, I'm wearing a mask. And that that alone will be like, oh, you're submitting to fascism and you want the government to do all this. I'm like, I, I just, I cannot. Or like today, today I did a, a radar that actually was pretty well received because it was basically just about the Supreme Court case where they take away all our fourth, fourth, fourth amendment rights. Uh, if you live near the border mm-hmm. and that's that. like, you know, conservatives love that. It's a straight up and down constitutional case. So it's easy peasy. Most people were happy with it, but a lot of the comments were along the lines of, Oh, I guess she cares about the fourth amendment, but not the second amendment. And it's like, tell me one time in my life. I've said, let's banish the second amendment. Tell me even one time. Tell me one time. Every single one of these amendments has Caveats and limitations, including the First Amendment. We've got liable laws. We've got uh, intellectual property rights. We have all kinds of restrictions on speech, hate speech. It exists, and the conversation is about what those restrictions should be and and how much of it, how how much it becomes at what point it becomes unconstitutional. That same conversation can be had with the Fourth Amendment. The same conversation can be had with the Second Amendment. Just be honest about it. Just mm-hmm. say, oh, she is more happy to have infringements. She she thinks. She thinks we should infringe more in the Second Amendment than she thinks we should infringe on the Fourth Amendment. Like, just make that argument. But it's these, like, it's it's the complete untetheredness from what I say that makes me feel gaslit and insane and why I try not to look. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the thing about, like, you provide the caveats. It would be one thing if you didn't provide the caveat or the disclaimer note at the beginning of, like, the statements that you make, but you often provide them, and it is still as if, like, it was just edit it out like you could be like i'll grant you xyz and still people are like well you never said anything about xyz and it's just like in the video go back to it but what's funny is when you are um you do the the like when y'all discuss topics and you kind of lean into your background in law Mm -hmm. and you just have people who you know, a profile picture is worth a thousand words or nothing. But it's just like, I don't know if this many people have gone to law school 
And they're just like, Bree, you're wrong on this constitutional law question. And I'm like, everybody wants to tell somebody their law. Well, the my, my favorite is there's a whole cohort of people who assume that I am 25 years old and an idiot. By the way, I fully was a JD at 25 years old also, but never mind. I've been a lawyer for a long time. But they assume that I'm very young and stupid. A bunch of people today were like, oh, who is this child in a sundress who thinks she knows what she's talking about? I'm like, all right, well, it was hot. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I'm wearing a sundress. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I walk home but, afterward. Um, it's hot as a mug. I'm, I'm not trying to do this right now. Um, but yeah, it's fine. It's all fine. Okay. Everything's fine. Just don't read the comments. Everything's yes. fine. <laughs> Just don't read the comments. Just keep it chill. Watch the show and keep it pushing. And I would say, look, I'll say this and then I'll make my final point. We can move on with life. But I would say something in the in the comment section and just be like, hey, you know, this was a good perspective from Bree. But for some reason, my full government name shows up as I'm about to comment on things. And I see everybody's like, cool cat number four. Johnny is cool. All of this shit. And I'm like, I would engage you guys, but I'm like, I don't want my, my full government name. Well, let's go look up this guy. Let's go look at Adrian. <laughs> Don't do it, Adrian. Oh, my... Save yourself, Adrian. Because they will, they will come for it, you. But they will come for me, you know. And so I'm just kind of waiting in the shadows. And, like, every now and then I'll Google, how do I change <laughs> my my youtube name so that i can comment but by the third line i'm like this is too much and i just go watch something on streaming or like listen to another video <laughs> yeah mine is also so, i think it's connected to your gmail and so mine is also brianna gray uh see it's so much that's a yeah lot. but we'll, I'll figure, one day I, I have yeah one day we'll figure it out now the final thing <laughs> yes there was a point that was brought up about the messaging that comes from republicans mm-hmm. And I remember I was talking with somebody who is a would consider themselves a liberal. Well, they would I would consider mm-hmm. them a liberal. They're on the broad left. They are like not like full throated Bernie Sanders or anybody in the kind of towards the social democracy or social demo, socialist side, mm-hmm. et cetera. And so I was explaining to them, I was like, listen, the reason why we're losing these races is not because of progressives. They hold no mm-hmm. power. You can't do two things at once. You can't. AOC has the world in mm-hmm. her hands, but AOC can't get anything done. It's like, you guys, she doesn't have that mm-hmm. much power. Okay, putting her aside. But I was telling her, I was like, one of the things that the Democrats should look at is how they message their information or their policy platforms to the broader community. Notice the distinction between when Republicans say we're going to build a wall, that's it. Build mm-hmm. the wall, build that shit, period. The, the Democrats, if they were to support a policy like build the wall, they would say something like, we're going to build a wall with only this much fencing and that much of a wall. <laughs> we're going to include some, You're doing too much. Just relax. You're talking too much. Okay. And then, by the way, that so was a Democratic that. policy. Hillary Clinton was out advocating for building a fence on the southern border. You know... You gotta love those. Democrats. Yeah, and then she was Obama doing something. It wasn't catchy. It wasn't even. Ca- it was obviously immoral, but it also wasn't even catchy when she said it. <laughs> to your point, yeah, it was probably that weak, that weak Democrat shit. And then, so like the stuff like Medicare for all, it is sad to see them like constantly fumbling a bag that they could actually have for mm-hmm. themselves because there is no policy plan, there is no vision, and oftentimes people are quick to like, no, 
people who are not super political, people who are political, but the Biden administration and people who are falling within that wing of the Democratic Party, they're just very reactionary. Oh my gosh, there's a baby shortage. We're going to wait until we are being called out to actually mm-hmm. do something. There's no vision for policy. And so when it comes to, it's unfortunate that they fumble the bag of like Anina Turner. Y'all mm-hmm. have nobody, nobody's voting for Kamala Harris. They have the opportunity to do it in the primaries and that shit didn't happen. Okay. Nobody is voting for um, Pete Buttigieg. They have the opportunity to do it and it didn't happen. And so you could have somebody, an order like Nina Turner, who's courageous and charismatic, but you're just like, no, nah, we're going to go for the bland and forgettable Chantel Brown. And they're doing this around the country. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you there's there's a reason for that. They don't want Nina Turner in there talking about why are you giving money to Israel. They don't want Nina Turner in there. I mean, I really do think sometimes they won't let a lot of stuff slide. For some reason, it does seem to be for whatever reason. When you look at when uh, Jamal Bowman bends the knee, when all of them bend the knee, it is always over some funding funding military funding usually israel related that they all end up bending me and i don't know what this vice grip is all these apac um what do you call them packs <laughs> super packs and stuff that rallied around um chantel brown and have rallied around the rallied against um summer lee they particularly seem to like to come after black candidates and accuse them of anti-semitism and, and run all these campaign ads against them. But the ones who think they need to survive, I will candidly say that I had a conversation with one of these candidates before they actually won their race. And I was like, well, are you going to be a good, are you going to be an actual progressive or are you going to be a sellout? And they were like, well, I want to be good, but I also got to win in this district. And it's going to be really hard for me if I take certain positions with respect to Palestine. And like that, that to me, that is what keeps coming up. There's they can, there's a little wiggle room here and there. Medicare for all, fifteen dollars minimum wage. Like they can talk about other stuff, but that seems to be like the line that cannot be crossed without there being repercussions. And it's really bleak. I don't know what that is, but it's really bleak. Um. So yeah, they don't have yeah. power. They're not going to have power. They're not going to be able to. It, it, it is very. It is why we had the conversation we did on Monday about electoralism and why people are very frustrated about. <clears throat> you know, even if you believe in a candidate like Michaela, what is she going to be able to do when she gets in there? Is she going to be able to stick the landing? I don't know. She seems like the best among the group to me, but I don't know. It's it's a legitimate question. And it is frustrating that liberals seem to not get that, not get what's really operating and that it's not about the popular progressive ideas. And it's frustrating that liberal pundits perpetuate the idea that the problem here really is that progressives are fumbling the bag. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I do think, like, with the Michaela, I think she's a... That... That that swamp is going to keep on swamping. But what I will say is, the vibes that I get from Michaela is she's going to go in there and tell them, y'all's breasting. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Your breath stinks and y'all need to be doing Medicare for all. And, you know, I'm going to just take that as a win. Are we going to get it tomorrow? No. But I would love to see a video of Michaela Wilkes, Congresswoman Michaela Wilkes tells Nancy Pelosi and Henry Quay are their best friends. Yeah, I will say, like, everyone was gets on their best <laughs> behavior sometimes when they come on the podcast and stuff. I don't know why. But I have seen her in other contexts. And you don't have to take my word for it, Google videos or whatever. I'm not expecting anybody to do anything because of what I'm saying right now. But whatever you think about electoralism, I have seen her say things that 99% of politicians would not say. 
And I have seen crowds react to her very positively because she was barn burning and saying stuff, stuff that even I was like, oh, girl, I should want to say that, <laughs> even though I obviously agree with it. Um, and she, her background is, I mean, I know it's not about background and Corey Bush also had, you know, a certain kind of background and we all thought that was going to mean she was going to stick the landing and she didn't. So like grain of salt, but Michaela, like her experience with incarceration, like giving birth to her baby in prison, like she is kind of not messing around and very much feels like she has nothing to lose here. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Also, it's worth saying yeah. that Sydney Hoyer really sucks. So. But is it even worth saying that? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he just, he really, he really, really sucks. So go, I hear you're in line. I want you to get your Wendy's. Mm-hmm. What, what yeah, are you going to yeah. get? So, thank you. so of course, I'm just going to get this as they call it. Hey, say, of course. Yeah. I got the four for four, four, four situation. Junior bacon cheeseburger. Mm. Cause. Mm. The pizza was on the ground and it's nowhere to get down. <laughs> like, like, go to tonight when you go to bed, just close your eyes. <laughs> I am visualizing it. I'm visualizing you opening it up and trying to figure out if it's an olive or a roach. <laughs> <laughs> it's an olive or a roach. Like, it's fighting back. It might be an olive, y'all. <laughs> I am dying. Okay, I'm glad you got yourself some dinner. What part of, what part of the country are you in, by the way? I'm in. Atlanta. Oh, right. You said that. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Yeah, I'm at Georgia State. University. Okay, all right. Cool beans. All right, well, thank you for calling in, Adrian. I really enjoyed chatting with you. <laughs> yes, hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again. And um, everybody have a great night. And I'll yes, please. Have- all right. Okay, I think that we should – I was going to end at 11 anyway and just do two and a half hours. So maybe Adrian should be the last caller. You guys have been great. I appreciate all of you. I have been told that the clipping tool no longer works for folks, but I see – Charlie from Colin is in the chat. So, Charlie, I got to tell you, I've been telling folks to clip their favorite parts of the episode, and they haven't been able to do so because that functionality is apparently gone. And we we here at The Debrief would love to get it back because some of us at The Debrief feel a little overwhelmed and stretched thin and don't want to clip their own episodes. <laughs> so to the extent that we can empower listeners to clip their favorite bits and push them to social media again, that's what the people want. I also have not queued up a good outro song. What are we even talking about right now? Like, what is what is the vibe? We're talking about, people are talking about 1-6 on the internet a lot right now. I'm, I think it's hilarious that not a single one of you wanted to talk about, about the 1-6 hearings that are ongoing, LOL. Um, I didn't really play any clips from the episode, and we didn't get too much into inflation. I also can't think of a song about inflation, but how about this? How about this? It's not entirely inflation, but you can like, you can read into what I'm going for here with this. It's a little bit of a early aughts, maybe late nineties throwback. Elder millennials will appreciate this with me. I appreciate all of you. I will see you on Monday. We've got a interview with an elected representative it's going to be a good one. You know how it goes. Subscribe, patreon.com slash fedfedpodcast. Blah, blah, blah. You guys all know that. Take care of yourselves. Enjoy your weekend. Try to relax and unplug. You deserve it. Love you guys. Keep the faith. I know where I belong and nothing's going to happen. Yeah.